Good day, all. Another day in paradise. <laughs> From one day to the next, you never know what Mr. Market's going to bring you or what Vladimir Putin's going to bring you. Never seen so many experts in uh, geopolitics and military strategy in my life. All you have to do is go on Twitter. I guess they're former retired um, virologists, immunologists. So now they're all military experts. And um, I only know one thing, which is I don't know. And for my younger friends in the room, is that great quote, which I've said many a time. can't remember where I got it from, but I'll say it twice. I'm not young enough to know everything. Again, I'm not young enough to know everything. And that's not with any disrespect to the younger folks. I was younger once, as well as my good friend Dave Collin, who's going to come in here in a second to speak. Um, but... You've been around long enough, you've seen enough things, you've made enough mistakes, you get run over enough, and you know that you don't know. And that's kind of right of passage in the investment business, as in any other, many other facts, aspects of life. So with that said, um, we can talk about Russia, of course, and Ukraine, but I think uh, I want to hold that for a little bit later in the conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time, Dave. Um, I'm sure most of the, you really require no introduction, most of the folks in the room probably have either heard you speak before or follow you on Twitter or elsewhere. Um, you know, your reputation precedes you. Um, Dave's a smart guy. Again, he's not young enough to know, to know everything as well. And he and I have mutual friends and we've talked from time to time. And I thought it'd be interested, interesting to get another gray hair in the room, uh, which is why I thought, you know, again, I'm not interested for all you guys out there that want to day trade. I know there aren't too many of you out there. This, this, this room is not for you, particularly this conversation is, 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 is not for you, all right? Um, Dave, you know, he's, he's been around. It's not his first rodeo. Uh, I, I don't want to say he's a paid member of the Austrian school, but I know he speaks in those terms. He's a smart cookie. He's up at Cornell. Um, he, he can talk about organic chemistry if we want to, but I, I think I'm probably going to tune out if we do that. But anyway, Dave, this is meant to be free form. You can just... You know, if you just want to talk for a bit, whatever stream of consciousness, whatever strikes you, what's most noteworthy about the environment, forget about the day-to-day -day nonsense, it's sort of big picture. Just, just what are your thoughts, particularly keeping in mind some of the younger folks in the room who maybe don't have your perspective. So, Dave, the floor is all yours. Uh, yeah, so I'm an organic chemist who got into markets in the 90s and uh, got serious about them in the 90s, which is an indexer till then. And then uh, decided they were nuts and bailed on them in 99 and went to gold. That was a lucky moment. Uh, did energy throughout the noughts. And so my best decade by comparison with the world was the noughts where I compounded 13% annualized while everyone else was getting their ass kicked. Um, and then the last decade has been pretty mediocre for me because I don't invest in bubbles well. So... Because uh, I don't like buying things that are overvalued. I'm not a big fan of the greater fool theory, things like that. So, um, so I, I'm a value guy. Um, I analyze how expensive the markets are, and they look like they've broken all-time records. And so, it's they're not terribly interesting to me right now, except as an observer. So, so Dave, if you were, um, let's say you were, you were, you know, they put you in charge of the Cornell Endowment. Or alternatively, and, and again, it depends on the investor, your time horizon, I get that. But whether through the lens of head of the Cornell Endowment or if you were 30 years younger, you know, you've got your net worth to you want to 
obviously preserve it, hopefully grow it. What advice would you be giving to either the Cornell Endowment or the typical, you know, guy in his 40s who's, who's, who, who has some net worth that he wants to protect and hopefully compound? Uh, oh, those are two different groups. Um, the young person, I would tell them to do 60-40. Don't expect to not get your ass kicked in the next five years. And don't worry about it. It'll feel like a lot of money, but it won't be. And you'll learn an important lesson and, and move on. So um, the Cornell Endowment's a tricky one. Um, I, I certainly am a hard asset guy. So it, anything that involves resources, stuff like that would be your best bet. Uh, I would stink at it. I would be fired from the endowment before before I had a chance to shine, I think. So um, I'm, I'm exceedingly patient. Um, sitting on cash was comfortable to me for quite a long time until inflation spiked. And now now it's a treacherous market. Now, um, now there is no safe haven. I was happy to miss opportunity. That didn't bother me. But uh, but now 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 I'm getting my ass kicked if I'm sitting on cash. Um, for the record, the last couple of weeks have been the best couple of weeks in a very long time. So, um, so I'm not getting killed yet, but, um, I, I think inflation is going to change the entire regime of the markets. And I think the rules that we've learned over the last 40 years are going to go to hell in a handbasket. So I, I, I agree with you completely, Dave. So let's drill down on one thing you said. I'm not sure I heard you right, or maybe it requires some elaboration. You said for the for the for the individual sixty forty. Um, what do you expect that forty to do for you? Because I, 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 to me, that's uh, just that's just like an anchor on the portfolio. No, but the problem I have is if 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 young guys start playing it, uh, you know. So if, if it's a twenty four year old kid going out into the job market, I, I, I think that'll be focusing on other things besides their retirement account. And so the 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 thing that I would tell them to focus on is saving. And I'd tell them to focus on using all their their tax exemptions and all their all their uh, their sheltering mechanisms and get used to savings in the spirit of the book, The Millionaire Next Door. And uh, and to not worry about their returns um, as much as worrying about getting in the habit of not spending every penny. Right. So let's go to regime change. You were talking about inflation a little bit and. In our conversation earlier today, you were accounting for me. And of course, well, if you want to mention names, that's up to you, but we can keep it anonymous. You were talking about a hedge fund dinner you were at recently and their attitudes towards inflation or ignorance of inflation. And I suspect there's a fair number of those in the investor class who weren't, weren't even alive the last time inflation was a thing, going back to the 70s. So as Michael Guyad, who I, I know you know, I think you were in his room a few weeks ago. Right. Who everyone, should, everyone should follow him. Smart guy. He says, you know, there are no such things as gurus or only cycles. And I think back to 1981 when I started at Fidelity and, you know, Paul Volcker, please call your office. You know, the whole idea of how asset prices move and relative prices change in an inflationary environment as opposed to a disinflationary or deflationary environment and the great moderation we've seen for four decades and how a lot of the factors that, you know, cause that are now in the process of reversing. Could you speak to how the regime change and what strikes you as you see a lot of the passes for wisdom and how to invest the problems you have with that and what should people be thinking about with respect to inflation as far as their investments go? Uh, so the dinner you're referring to, I probably shouldn't name names. Uh, what I'll tell you is the other eight guys in the room were, were all founders of hedge funds. Uh, 
uh, several of them you couldn't possibly not know. Uh, there was some ownership of sports teams in the room to give you an idea of the magnitude. And, uh, and what I was struck by in the conversation of inflation, and I was struck by the conversation overall with one exception. Um, they didn't seem to look at a big picture so they all seem to have siloed skills where some, you know, one guy's a vol junkie and another guy's a tech junkie who, who by the way, got, got the crap kicked out of him at the dinner. Um, he got sort of Kathy Wooded. Um, and uh, David, I have to no, David, David, new line for you. No, 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 you don't, no, no attribution required. The new terminology you're looking for, David, you, you said it's brilliant. He got taken to the wood in quotation marks. He got taken to the wood shed. Oh, oh, that's interesting. That's very good. That's very good. Um, I have to remember that. Um, yeah, and, and I think Kathy Wood. So, so it was a strange dinner because what I found was is that most of them seemed to uh, have expertise, but we're, we're, we're sort of missing the secondary tertiary effects of, of various issues. So they, they talk about inflation like it was, you know, first of all, they talk in terms of the Fed and the Fed's balance sheet and this and that. And the one who knew what he was doing chimed in and said, this inflation is embedded, it's not going away, and it's a massive problem, right? The others were talking about it like a monthly basis. And, and so, um, so I, you know, I said a few things. Um, I said that, you know, this, this next leg down will not be over until Kathy Woods on a milk carton. Um, the, and I asked the young punk tech bull, I said, you know, who Jeff Rona is, do you know who Jack Rubman is? And he didn't. And I said, that's because no one remembers the losers on the way down. Right. They got clobbered. And, uh, and so I, 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 I've done an analysis evaluation about every four years I do it. And I, I look at about 25 metrics and that way, you know, you can't be deceived by your favorite metric. And uh, they all really point to the same sort of round number end result. And that is I have the markets priced at about 120% overvalued, which means you're looking at a sort of a Hussmanfelder, you know, 60 plus percent collapse, uh, which doesn't have to be. I'm not a big believer in crashes. I, I don't think crashes do anything because you get that V-bound stuff. I, I think that the uh, I think that. Um, investors' attitudes are changed over many, many years. And so um, I, I hate to anchor on a past event because, because it won't be the same, but the, the one I could most imagine it being like would be the, the 67 to 81 bear market where you lost 75% inflation adjusted over 14 years. And when you got to the end of that, you couldn't find anyone on the planet who wanted to buy an equity, right? You couldn't give them away. They just wanted nothing to do with them. They swore them off. Never again am I touching those things, right? That's what, what real bear markets do. That's, that's a real correction because correct attitudes. Uh, I think we're, we're headed for one of those. Um, if the Fed wants to stretch it out over 35 years, they're welcome to, but I think that's a bad idea. Um, and... Uh, and by my math, it's, it's just going to take a long, painful series of, you know, false starts. And, and then at the very end, I think I'm going to be an old man um, when when there's green shoots and 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 only the craziest people want to buy equities. And, and you, know, you know, Dave, it's really interesting to hear you say that I was in a room. I did a room the other day and I was telling the story because I joined Fidelity. I was a summer intern in 80. And there were, you know, guys there talking about what it was like in the early 70s where you came into the office and you expected the market to kind of go down every day. 
Right. And Fidelity now with five trillion assets back in the day, they had, you know, seven billion and they were actually losing money. Imagine right. that. Um, so things have way of going full cycle. Let me just give you a break for one second. I want to read something. Um, there's a book I've been reading from books lately. It's like we sort of do our our uh, our, our, our church reading or whatever. Um and so I just want to read two paragraphs here. I'm not going to read from Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. There's a wonderful book, which I urge everyone to buy. Um, again, I have no relationship with the author. It's called the Tao. I'll tweet it out. It's called the Tao Jones Average. T-A-O, Tao Jones Average, A Guide to Whole-Brained Investing by Bennett Goodspeed. It's a delightful read. It was published uh, in the, let me see where it was published, in the uh, 70s or 80s. I can't remember exactly when. But basically, it's the idea that you need to use a whole brain approach to investing, both the left hand. Dave, Dave, could you mute yourself so you're not speaking just because it's a little bit, little bit noisy. And you need to use both the left brain, which is, you know, very analytical and rational, as well as the right side of the brain. And the problem with Wall Street, and this goes back to what you're talking about, David, with too many specialists. Everyone's in their own little rabbit hole, their own silo. So let me just read you two paragraphs from here, if I may. It's entitled, this is page 43 uh, from the Tao Jones Average, where Wall Street is headed. The dominant role of security analysts in the decision-making of professional investors is a key to Wall Street's mindset. After all, they are called analysts. These highly paid researchers use logic by combing through the numbers, interviewing corporate managers, and then passing on their recommendations to the investment community as to whether a stock is a buy, hold, or sell. As logical, brilliant, and as hardworking as these professionals may be, the lack of success of their recommendations speak to the ineffectiveness of their approach. Unlike the Japanese, he was talking about the Japanese in a whole brain approach to thing. Unlike the Japanese, analysts do not take a whole brain approach to understanding the world. By applying left by applying left brain logic to the illogical stock market, they often are using the wrong tool for the tasks. Though tests may not have been done, it is quite likely that the majority of those investors who consistently outperform the market via their right brain qualities, for that is the best that is the side that can best sense the rapidly changing world of the stock market. Lao Tzu, if he were a professional money manager, would probably not read institutional research reports, as he would feel they would fill up the mind, preventing it from seeing the true nature of things. It's kind of funny. My observation of the investor class these days in the Twitter sphere is there's too much right brain investing going on. No one's doing the numbers. No one's doing the work. The real key to success is you have to combine both the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. So, David, this may be a bit of a cop-out, but I'm just kind of curious, as a scientist, when, you know, put your academic hat back on, when you go use a scientific method and you have to allow for all different possibilities, you know, you're in search of the truth, not in search of the narrative or the or, or the theory that supports your conclusion. You, there's a sort of analytical rigor that's required. You have to be very open-minded. And so as you look at what passes, I, I go back to your dinner you were talking about, where everyone's in their own little rabbit hole. And, they, and one guy's talking about vol, another guy's talking about technology stocks, blah, 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 blah. I mean, sounds to me like all those guys were just using the left side of the brain. They're just completely missing the bigger picture. So, I mean, how can, how can an approach like that possibly work? Well, one of the one of the I don't, I don't think I benefit from the rigor of, of science as much as from the, the 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 luckiness of the choice that I chose to uh, to follow. So I went into a complicated area that some people thought you couldn't understand, and others thought they already did. 
And it turns out over the last 40 years, pretty much everything we ever studied was wrong. And it was wrong in some pretty fundamental ways where you, we, you know, some Nobel Prize was given out and we'd look at it and we go, it doesn't even work, um, stuff like that. And so, uh, and so what that allowed me to do is to realize pretty young that experts are, can be fundamentally wrong. And, and so it, it gave me the capacity to watch 12 central bankers all agree and say, yeah, but I think you're actually full of shit. Um, the other day I was thinking about, for example, stagflation and how the economists thought it was impossible, right? And, and I, I'm looking at this now. I actually said this at dinner. I said, well, you know, if you're Joe Sixpack and you're barely feeding your family and all of a sudden inflation goes up 10% to 10% and you're, you now have to cut your spending by 10%, you can't cut your taxes, you can't cut your mortgage, you can't cut your car payments, which means your discretionary spending has to cut by what, 20, 30%. And as a consequence, you are not going to be spending and we are going to be in a stagflationary require, uh, environment by necessity. And then the question is, how could stagflation not be true is, is the way I would phrase that. Right? How did they miss the concept of stagflation? I, I just don't know. It seems to me that as soon as you've got inflation, you've got stagnation. Right. So let's talk about that, Dave. Um, I'm in your camp. I think the equity market is screwed either way, i.e., and you and I talked about this a little bit, i.e., either, you know, inflation, you know, oil prices keep going up, inflation keeps going up, and we go down the road you're talking about, or they go up enough to the point where we get a recession. Either way, you're looking at a world of, you know, we've had maximum liquidity, maximum bond prices, maximum investor participation, maximum sentiment, maximum profit margins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And at the margin... We're just going to be looking at a little bit less of each of that. So I think equities are completely, um, again, continue to offer return-free risk. And so going back to what would you do if you're a young man, just so you know, Dave, it's the first time you've been in this room, but we have, and we're going to, I'm going to ask some of the folks to ask a couple of questions of you. We have uh, a group which is affectionately known as the Canadian oil mafia, okay, a Canadian energy mafia. They are all in on energy and oil, all right, looking at the tremendous misallocation of resources that, that's occurred and it's been exacerbated by the whole ESG phenomenon. And I think we're set up for, and I'm going to bring Mark Newman up here in a second. I think we're set up for an extended period where, um, you know, that may be the only thing you need to know. It kind of, Dave, go, goes back to, you know, Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. Remember, you know, he's like young, young man. Plastics. One, 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 yeah, plastics, right? Okay. Just like in the OOs or, or, or noughts or, or, or teens. Technology, right? So what if I told you, with apologies to my Canadian oil mafia friends in the room, that, all, that the word now, it's not plastics, it's energy. And if you are a younger man, you know, you said you got lucky on gold. Like, what would you say to the Canadian oil mafia? Like, you know what? The hell with the 60-40. The hell with this balanced portfolio. We're just all in on energy and nothing else comes close to holding a candle. What would you say to them? Well, for the record, and I am on record since every year, I lay it all out in for all the world to see. And so I have my detractors because for... For a dozen years now, they've been able to read every positive and negative move I've made. Um, I am long energy. I'm not as boss of the wall long as your mafia is because that's not how I do it. Um, <clears throat> for me, a big position is uh, 15% of my, my total assets, for example. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I'm not there yet on energy. But I, I, I started going long energy uh, at the 
end of last year. I was long energy from 01 through about, uh, Jesus, 15 or so. I caught some of the tail end of the problem, right? No, there's no question I got hurt on the downside a bit. Um, and then I was pretty much pure cash and gold after that, which I caught the downside of that too. Um, but in energy, I started, it, it, the, 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 the first shot that I heard was, was when they booted Exxon from the Dow. And I go, that's a buy call right there. And replace it with salesforce.com. What a piece of crap. Um, and then uh, and then I'm reading Felder, and Felder points out that, uh, who's been very generous with his time, I should add. Uh, thank you, Jess, Jesse. Um, and then he points out that the energy had gone from 16% of the S&P to 2%. I go, oh, that's another huge buy call. So that's when I started going into energy and spy and doing it simply, right? I'm not a, I'm not a stock picker. I'm not very good at it um because i can't really read balance sheets um so i just you know fidelity my way through a bunch of energy uh, mutual funds and have had a pretty good run um and i i caught most of this wave and i do think they're right i think 10 years from now we could all look smarter than hell um it'll take me longer to get into it um about a year ago i went long uranium and uh, not uranium, the metal. I'm not a commodity trader, but Canadian uh, uranium, uh, uranium equities. And so I bought, um, I started entering this, this Gehring and Rosenschweig dynamic duo asset group. And, you know, I've got some uh, Cameco and stuff like that. Now, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that once we discover that the, uh, the global warming fiasco is yet another narrative and that, uh, that alternative energies are yet another disaster, uh, I think we're going to go to, to nukes. I think we have to go to nukes. And so, so then, you know, they'd say don't let confirmation bias guide you, but, but when you're doing something that seems unusual, and a year ago uranium seemed a little unusual, um, you do need to hear from some smart people who agree with you. Right. It's very, very hard to be the only guy on the planet. The, the chance of you being right is not very good if you're the only guy. Um, and 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 there were some guys out there. That I noticed uh, Cuppy and and I noticed uh, Colin Roach. And that there were some guys starting to chime in who were who were uranium bulls. And so I, you know, I, I, I think that's a good move. Uh, the reason I don't answer that way to the young guy is because I don't think the young guy should be watching the markets. I think the young guys should be trying to build a career and change the world and just pack money away somehow. So I, I'm really leery. I, I warned them from doing that. And I warned them from reading zero hedge. <laughs> no, I'm 66. I read zero hedge and I get swallowed up in the nightmare we call the world. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, and, the, and, you know, as opposed to Jim Cramer who says there's always a bull market going on somewhere. My job is to help find it and make you money. Zero hedge. There's always a disaster occurring somewhere. That's right. That's right. And, and the problem is, is it's hard to be a young guy whose job it is to go out and change the world if you think the world's hopelessly fucked up. Right. Totally. All right. So, Dave, hold the thought for one second. Um, our good friend, uh, Mark Newman, is in the house. I know he's got to go in five minutes. I promised him if he came up on stage, um, he could talk for a couple minutes. I know he's got a busy schedule. We're no very great, grateful to have him here. So, Mark, you can either weigh in on stuff we just talked about or you just want to tell us your thoughts and then you can do a hit and run and leave and then we'll, then we'll go back to Dave. So, Mark, what's up, my friend? Hey, how are you, guys, uh, everybody? Um, so just a couple of things. Uh, you know, George, you started out by saying uh, there's tons of, um, of, of global uh, political global politics experts now. And I just I am not that I'm going to say that right now. But 
One of my longest friends in the market is now a partner at a big fund I've known for 20 plus. He's a Russian guy, okay? And so I spoke to him nights before, a couple nights before the invasion. And he said, look, Putin doesn't really want to have another generation of hatred, animosity, and anger running through the old USSR or whatever. So even the, 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 the somewhat Russian guys in the know were shocked by what went on. And now he's in a corner. And he, if he keeps doing this kind of you know, bellicose behavior, the oligarchs and the wealthy are going to revolt, right? And if he backs down in here, his power run is over. So he's a bit of a Wolverine trapped in the corner. I just think, I don't, again, I don't know anything, but you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, pressure here. And I think we're still underestimating the ability of, of US led policy to resolve this so clean and easily in, a short, in the short run. Now to that end, the oil stocks, and uh, Dave mentioned them earlier, and we've been obviously talking about, you've been talking about a lot here, George. It's interesting that prior to the Russia event, so let's call it maybe two weeks ago, oil stocks ran, oil ran, and all these, you know, the, the Exxon Mobiles and on down the line were doing great. And now I have a lot of guys hitting me saying, the oil's at 105, these stocks have stopped performing. I think that the last two weeks of bellicosity in the globe has caused people to say, well, the oil price run-up is great for these stocks, but bellicosity in the world probably is not a general helper. And then now I can't for the life of me figure out how the U.S. is still redoubling on the renewables and all that garbage while we're relying on Iran, Saudi, and uh, Russia for energy. That just seems like a, just a crazy, untenable equation. Um, earlier on, Dave was talking about a 60-40, and, you know, it's interesting – uh, you know, I, I I took the CFA exam 20 plus years ago, and that whole 60-40 thing is this big discussion. But as the yields on bonds have gone to 40-year lows, that 60-40, George, you said it yourself earlier. It's like, what's that 40 give you, right? Because, uh, you know, there's no yields on these things. And it used to be this thing where your, your, your fixed income allocation should represent your age, right? So if you were 20 – Maybe you should have 20 or less percent in fixed income. If you're 70, you should probably have 70 percent. In, in, but I think that's changed now because, like you said, George, rates are at all-time lows. And the funny thing is when you hear like the three assets, okay, bonds, stocks, and commodities, bonds are bumping up against 40-year highs, low, uh, well, or yield, yield lows, price highs, and most expensive in history. And then you have Jim Cramer say – Oh, stocks seem pretty cheap relative to bonds. Um, bonds are at their most expensive in history. So, yes, they're a little cheap, but they're not cheap in the world, And which leads me to commodities. Gold, silver, the ags. I mean, if you look at that Deutsche Bank agriculture or the Jim Rogers agriculture, you look at it on a daily. Yeah, it's a little overbought here. You look at it on a weekly, monthly. Those still have a lot to go. So I think commodities are still a place to be here, irrespective of rates. One, uh, I'm not a single name like powder guy, but I've been in this PDBC, okay? Paul, David, Boy, Charlie, for years now. Paid a fat dividend at the end of the year. It was basically, took a stock loss, but you got a 30% dividend. But anyway, this thing has retraced a lot, and it's just a general nice, um, if I'm concerned about inflation and don't want to look at it every day, that's a great vehicle. Now, the last thing, and then I do have to run, but George, we talked about this previously. You know, what do you do here? Well, I'll tell you, you stick to the value side of the equation because if everything's expensive and it's all going to go down, the value stuff, the under one-time sales, et cetera, that's just going to go down less. 
Now, I look at names like uh, Para, Viacom, whatever, Para, Discovery. Those are interesting because they're trading like, well, Para is definitely under book, under one-time sales, and they have the most content of any, almost anybody. They lost a little bit in the streaming angle, but they gained in the subs. I think someone in 12 to 24 months buys them. That's just my view. That's not a recommendation or whatever, but I would just say this. You're not adding in this environment unless it's working. Paul Tudor Jones, only losers add to losers. And in this environment where we are, where the, the, the natural feeling here is a little bit more bearish than bullish, obviously, if it's not up two or three days after I bought it, I'm not adding to it. And I'm not buying all of it on the first slug. So, you know, I think it's still choppy here in front of the Fed. And, and, and there's a lot of people who are bared up, so it might just go sideways. But I think we're just at an interim breather. Um, you so, know, so, after- so, 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 Mark, I know you got to run, but last quickie. I do. But last, last quickie. Getting beyond the next, you know, little patch, and who knows? I mean, the nightmare for markets goes on for quite a while. But getting beyond the, oh, it's oversold, I can't short it. Oh, energy's up too much, I can't buy it. Getting beyond that, I mean, is your bigger picture message, say, looking out for the rest of the year? Um, you, you'd, fa- you'd favor the value side of things and – are you generally, do you have a strong view on the market overall or not particularly? Is it all more about the sectors that you're in? Well, yeah, no, it is pretty idiosyncratic. It's definitely uh, the market itself. Like I, I'm looking at it as a market of stocks here, not a stock market, because as you pointed out, George, in one of your many tweets recently, which are awesome, it's a, a, a handful of these names have already been wooded, right? So there is uh, there is mark, uh, stocks that have been just destroyed and are well into their bear markets. And then there's other that others that hold up better. So it's definitely an idiosyncratic situation. And I do think the stock pickers are going to definitely win to the passive guys in, in the indices this year. Um, but, you know, it's 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 tough sledding out there. And I I I, I think that this year is the the, the watershed shift uh, where it's underway and, you know, little bits at a time. It's happening for real. I mean, just as an aside, right? Biden's administration asked these crypto exchanges to to identify potential Russian uh, circumvention or evading of, of sanctions. All of a sudden, the crypto world, which, oh, governments can't touch and it's all anonymous and there's no recourse. Well, they just said report on your customers. So for everyone who says, oh, governments can't touch them and there's anonymity. Well, I don't know. Maybe there's not. So I think we're, we're still in for a lot of people, um, you know, in for a rude awakening still, still at this point. All right. Mark, if you can come back after your other meeting, that'd be great. Always love to hear from you. Um, that's awesome. Th- thanks for thanks for stopping by, Mark. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'll see yeah, you guys no soon. Yeah, no worries. All right. Bye-bye. So, all right. So let's reset here. Um, we're really fortunate to have Dave, Dave Collum in the room. Um, we have a lot of smart guys up on stage. Um, so if you got questions for Dave, that's really what I, I'd like to focus on because He's seen a lot. He's seen cycles. He's a you know, student of the market, really smart guy. So um, we're going to do three aces uh, and, and, and then oil god and then uh, energy burrito. So three aces, my friend. How are you? Hey, George. I'm doing swell. Thanks. Ho- thanks for having me. David, nice to hear your voice. Um, I've, you know, obviously followed you off and on for the past years. <clears throat> um, I'm just curious. So so I spent the last decade in Africa where I owned a conglomerate of mining companies, natural resources. And I'm very concerned here that the overall market naivete uh, as it relates to China. <clears throat> I think, you know, what we're seeing here now um, 
is basically a a pimple on a on a you know fly's rear end, if you will, uh, with regards to the disruption in you know in supply chain and natural resource chain as it relates to Russia. Um, I think very very few people know this, but China has had a suction cup uh, over the you know top of every single resource producing country in the world you know coupled with the fact that you know we have you know the epa uh here and you know the, the rust belt you know and lack of industrial manufacturing and you know frankly there's absolutely no way to process natural resources even if we were able to bring them on shore so everything's going to china Right. So if you look at the party of Davos um, is basically owned lock, stock and barrel by the CCP from Fink on down. It's indisputable uh, as far as I'm concerned. You know, so if we look at ESG, ESG is essentially a social credit score that only applies to countries other than China. Right. If you're you know, if you're employing Uyghurs and selling stuff to Nike or, you know, Walmart, you're cool. Right. But, you know, if you're drilling for oil and gas in Oklahoma, you're, you know, you're basically a pariah. So my, my, obs- my, my, my question for you is this. If we have what's going on now, what, you know, with the resource, you know, markets, you know, from the hydrocarbons across the board to lithium and the rest of it, what happens when these wackos with their, you know, net zero policies and all this other crap that's pushing everybody into these EVs and other, you know, heavy resource intensive industries. What happens, you know, China basically owns all the cards. They own all the cards, you know, particularly as it relates to the EVs and stuff. So fast forward, I know George talked about, you know, maybe looking out a week or two or three into the markets, you know, with oversold and short interest and all that stuff, what happens there? What happens in the next three, four, five, six, seven years when all of these, you know, first world regimes coming out of the party of Davos there, the EUs, the US, all of them, these whack jobs with this climate stuff and everything else like they pulled with the COVID, you know, what happens when China pulls a Russia? It's game over. It's game over. They have exclusive offtake agreements in every single country with every single mining company um and and that that's my observation my risk three years i love it i think you hit the nail on the head so agree with everything you just said but i guess what's the question you, you put to dave in respect to that well i'm just looking for a philosophical you know sort of answer as to you know what his opinion is based on you know the the the, the you know the the supposition that I've put forth. Right. Here. So, so Dave, Dave, let me put it another way. What are the odds that we're just the whole Western world is just sleepwalking to just a giant crisis here, be it energy, uh, strategic metals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I mean, you have a perspective on that, Dave? Dave, you got to unmute yourself, please. You there, Dave? I don't know if he's still there. There you go. Dave. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't yeah. fail. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but what's it? I mean, just like let me put it another way. Like the other day, I was reading something. I was like, "How in God's name did Germany put itself in a situation where they're getting whatever is thirty five percent, fifty percent of their nat gas from Russia?" I'm like, "What were they thinking?" All right. So I guess three aces question on a bigger scale, looking at the way the world is 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 played these cards, just not thinking or 
you know, or it's as Charlie Munger would say, it's like, you show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Everyone dealing out of self-interest. And now we wake up and his three aces is saying, those guys, them guys, they got all the cards. Like, what would you say to that? Well, um, for those who don't know this, some do. I, I write one blog a year. Uh, this year was, I'm going to estimate it at 300 pages. Uh, it gets published at the end of the year. And, uh, and I dedicated 100 pages to the rise of authoritarianism. And so uh, let me first agree with everything Mark said. Again, the only disagreement I have is that the average 23 or 4 year old is not capable of handling the things that he talks about. So my son, I, I put him into energy, right? He's, he's, he's otherwise paying no attention, but I put him in energy. And, and, and by the way, I have 30% gold. I, I have, and I'm buying gold miners. I think they're cheap. Um, now going back to the authoritarianism, which takes us deep, I can't explain the world using any conventional model. I, I, the, the world that I'm looking at, it looks like it's going exceedingly dark. And I, I dedicate huge amount of intellectual pagination effort into explaining my view on this. And I, I think it's possible that we're heading into a period of, of great darkness. D D D D D Dave, let me interrupt. Where can people, because I've not, where can people find your blog? And, and well, we won't, we won't, we, I mean, I know you'll give a prize to anyone who reads all 300 pages, but where can we find the blog? I want to skim it, Dave. Uh, if you search my name, David Cullum, and then you search year in review, and then put in any year you want, you'll get that year's write-up. So awesome. uh, All right. my, so, my pinned tweet is this year's. It's, it, it leads to part two, so you got to pay a little attention. So part it. one is just sort of bullshit uh, economic stuff, and it's pretty tame. Part two, it turns out to, to be COVID, and I, I felt this terrible need to bring the COVID narrative to its knees, and so I put a lot of effort in. No sooner did I upload it, and the COVID narrative came to its knees, and so I'm thinking, yeah, I could have just not written it, potentially, but I still had a lot of information in it. And part three is the rise of authoritarianism, and I... I, 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 I so, so I got invited to go to this dinner, right? How, how surreal is this, right? An organic chemist getting invited to a founder's dinner in New York City. The, the morning that I left for the dinner, I got a call from a guy. Some of you guys will know, some won't. A guy named Tony Deaton, who's been, again, unbelievably generous with his time and his affection. And, and he called me. Hey, 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 Dave, I don't know if you're in a different part of your house, but the connection is getting kind of skittish on us if I, I don't know what that's what that's about but it's kind of hard to hear your time okay let me move rooms because i'm in 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 one room of the house is that improving keep keep talking go ahead so in any event i yeah, uh, yeah that's much better go on okay uh, my son's in that room i'm just going to stand out in the hall here then so uh so it turns out that I, I think we're looking at a at a rising global authoritarianism which it, it you know, there's the bumper sticker explanation called the Great Reset, but but no one seems to know what the hell that is. Um, I think it's possible that it was a foregone conclusion when the Internet went live. So the Internet for years, I've been saying it's either our greatest hope for democracy or our worst enemy. And I wasn't sure which. Why well, I my, my bias is they're going to win this one. The bad guys are going to get a hold of it and they're going to win it. So I think we're going to end up with the China social credits and central bank digital currencies, which I don't know if you guys know this, but they're programmable. 
programmable digital currencies. Now, that is a nightmare scenario because what it means is, is that you not only will be paid in a digital currency, but it will be a designated digital currency. It will say this is for food, this is for rent, this is for your car. And, and, and so what they become is vouchers. And if you want a horrible, horrible story about that, go to Joe Rogan, number 1778, a guy named Majid Nawaj. And he goes into it, and it's really a compelling interview. And so I, I do, th- you know, the betting side of me says we're heading into this dark period in history. And, and, and I don't know if it's investable. I, I, again, a simpler model of uninvestable. Imagine you were a Nikkei investor, right? Pretend the Nikkei represents the world. And, and pretend that you were not in the Nikkei in 1989, so you didn't get clobbered by it. And you started investing. You're a 23, 24-year-old kid in Japan, and you just want to invest in the Nikkei. It took you 18 years to break even. The assumption that markets are always going to be investable, I think, is flawed. I think it's possible. It's just going to be an unbelievable period of, of asset. Yeah, yeah David, David, I was, yeah, I was put, you're getting a little sketchy on the on the voice quality again. But yeah, if you just look at the size of the over financial financialization of the economy, the size uh, of the stock of financial assets relative to the real economy, uh, George, to me, it just looks like, I'm, I'm sorry, so hey, were you going to say to me? I just want to say, Dave's uh, voice is very clear. It could potentially be maybe be on your end. It could be. Okay, all right. All right, that's fine. That's fine. As long as people can hear him, that's that's all that matters. So, so Dave, I guess the question is, you look at the financialization of the economy and the size of financial assets relative to the global economy. I don't have the numbers to hand, but I think roughly it's like, what? I think it's uh, equities are $100 and bonds are, I don't know, two or $300 trillion. we got to get Michael Howell back. I think the whole thing is $400 Yeah, four hundred trillion. Okay, relative to global GDP of what, like ninety or hundred or something like that. I mean, yeah. And so the credit cycle, the financial cycle, leads the business cycle. And I just, I don't. They have to. They got to keep trying to pump this thing up. And I think, to your point, I agree. There's a limit to how far this thing can go. I know people have been saying that for years, but what's different right now, it strikes me, is we've we've, we've come up against this inflation constraint, and also the issue of. Um, you know, this geopolitical dimension to, to your referring. So I just kind of wonder that this endless pumping up this bubble is finally reaching its limits. Um, what would you say to that? Well, I would say that if you want to correlate it, you'd say that it's the end of the, the bond bull market, right? So we've had a 40-year credit cycle. And there's an interesting, I discovered an interesting old uh, valuation metric. And when I first looked at it, I didn't quite understand it. Now this Peter Lynch's, I think it's called 20 for 20, something like that. Someone in the audience might know. I didn't pay too much attention, but it basically is the valuation of equities versus the inflation rate. And so when I first looked at it, I said, this is the only indicator that says that my equities weren't overvalued. But then I realized this is basically the Fed model in disguise. And what it's saying is, as, as, as inflation drifted down from 16 to, to, we'll call it two, who knows what it really is, right? But when it drifted from 16 to two, equities, of course, went up, and this is the Fed model. And, and therefore, Peter Lynch's metric showed equities to be fair value. Now, as we all agree, or at least you and I agree, is comparing an equity price using a, a, an overpriced bond as your benchmark is just stupid. Now, it isn't stupid if you're using bonds in some sort of leveraged trick to buy equities, 
But for the average person, it's just saying, okay, since you're going to make no money over here, you don't, you know, you're, you're fine making no money over there. So we are, we are priced to make no money at anything. <laughs> I think, I think the commodity is the best play. I totally agree with that, but, but it's possible that 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, this was not investable. This was just not, you know, there's guys who are going to trade it. There's going to be a fooled by randomness component. You know, Bill Miller, right, beat the S&P 13 years in a row. And it was random. Wow, how special is he? And then he gave it all back in one year. He gave the entire net gain back in one year. Uh, the Nikkei, those of us who are old enough to remember this, we were sending management teams to Japan to find out how they were doing it. When, in fact, someone should have just looked and said, it's a bubble, you idiots, right? But we somehow thought the Japanese had figured out the miracle of capitalism. They just had a huge real estate bubble. They, they stopped making goods and they started speculating in real estate. 100%, and, Dave. 100%. I mean, I was, so, I was, run, I was running a, a mutual fund, the Fidelity Overseas Fund in the 80s, investing in Japan. And then I started my first hedge fund in 91 to short the Japanese market. So 100%. Couldn't agree with you more. But don't, 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 when you short a market that goes down as slowly as that, don't you have a lot of frictional costs that eventually make that a tough, tough game, too? What you got to do is, and you learn the hard way, mate, Lord knows I made so many mistakes, but you have to short it in a size so that when the inevitable counter trend rally comes back in your face, you don't get squeezed out. You can't right. do it on so this, but this, it on Now we're talking professional level, uh, you know, uh, uh, martial arts investing here, right? This is, this is just not anything a normal person could or should do. Yeah, but, 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 but Dave, with respect, by the way, what type of dog do you have? I love dogs. What type of dog do you have? I have a Boston Terrier. And the last time I did a podcast with, uh, with, with Chris Irons on QTR, the dog was snoring through the whole thing. Um, so, <laughs> you, have a, uh, you, you have a Boston Terrier? How old is he? I have two of them. I have two Boston Terriers and a, and a, and a, uh, and a uh, Labrador. Love, love, love that, dogs. Love the, dogs. One that's, the one that's giving me hell right now is two years old. We got one that's seven months old. Man. That's the hilarious. Stupendous, stupendous dog. I never owned a small dog before. These guys are amazing. That's great. So in any event, so we're back to this. Um, Mark mentioned something really important, and that is, and this is a Hussman concept, which I only say it because it's the easiest way to find it. Um, if you look at the 10 deciles of valuation, you know, you can buy a stock that looks dirt cheap to you that's sitting with a PE of eight. There's nothing that says it can't go to a PE of four. Now, the way I invest in this environment, it was really helpful this year, actually. That's when I started investing in equities again. This year, believe it or not, you go, does, isn't that a top when Dave's investing? Not if it's energy, right? You get the drift. Um, but Michael Barry said something that was really important from a blog 20 years ago. He said, your default setting should be if it goes down, I just hang on to it. And if you can't imagine doing that, you shouldn't be owning it unless you're a trader. But if you're an investor, if, if you can't. So I'm buying Rio Tinto, for example. I own Rio Tinto quite a bit. And, and I just have this vision that over time I, I'll be OK. I might lose money, but I'll be OK. And, and I have to get some exposure. I mean, I literally had no equity exposure. And the gold market, the gold equity. Yeah, yeah but, yeah, but, but, but Dave, beware of false profits. If we go to the woodshed, no pun intended. They all know. go. Yeah, but they no, but Dave, but Dave, but Dave, but Dave, here's the problem. Narrative-based investing. Oh, if we just hang on, you know, our portfolio of stocks is going to go up 40% no, 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 a year for the next five but, years. But, but that's where I think if you look at it with a sober lens, you go, 
I can't do that. So here's my favorite example. Say you own Netflix. Imagine it goes down 99%. Now you own a company that's much, much, much cheaper that still loses fucking money. Therefore, there's no floor in Netflix. The floor in Netflix is the courthouse steps. Whereas the floor in Rio Tinto, they've got mines, they've got revenues, they've got profits. So there, there is a floor. So I bought equities yesterday. And for two years, I've been watching them at this meeting where they, we got at this lunch, that this dinner still sort of swirling in my head because I was more shocked at how narrowly they were thinking than how good they were. Um, we did the round table thing, you know, give me your one idea. And for two years, I've been pondering this. And I said, and then when I, they got to me, you could hear their jaws hit the floor. I said, Russian equities. And, and they were all, there was just no enthusiasm for them. Now I said, look, I'm going to wait till the dust settles. And fortunately I was sluggish enough and shit that the dust really ceased to settle. And so I watched what would have been a 75% clobbering not occur to me. But yesterday, yesterday I went in and, and, and I already had some RSX, which is a Russian mutual fund, which might get liquidated tomorrow. Who knows? Um, and I bought some more of that. I couldn't buy the equities. I don't know why Vanguard wouldn't let me into them. I don't know why. Right. All right. So th- thanks, David, with that. By the way, um, just as an aside, and, and, and Oil God's up next to Energy Burrito. And Hark, we have ah, Oliver Parsons from Cornerstone Analytics, a.k.a. Mike Rothman in the house. So, man, oh, man, this is a great room. Um, just for those of you uh, on a human level, just um, uh, 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 to, to keep you up, there's a guy in this room, uh, not in this room right now, I don't think he's here right this minute, but uh, Alex, who's Russian boy, I hope he comes back. To show you on a personal level what's going on, I mean, I got uh, uh, DM by him on Friday night. It was 6 p.m. our time, East Coast, 2 a.m. Moscow time. He's in a panic. Why? His account's been frozen by interactive brokers. Um, he is living in Russia. The account was registered uh, as a Russian account, but he's an Israeli citizen. And as, as, as we're talking, as we're going back and forth, the news came out about sanctions directed um, specifically at Putin. And he's like, oh, my God. He goes, I got to leave. Saturday morning, he, he did a brief Zoom thing on WhatsApp from the Moscow airport. He was heading for, to, for, for Israel. Um, he's like, I got to get out of here. And so, thankfully, um, he's in Israel. But his money's frozen. And, you know, he personally is, it's not even clear to him ever, he's ever going to see his money again. So, I mean, shit's getting real. Thankfully, he's out of the country. In any event. All right, let, let's move on. Uh, we're doing Oil God, Energy Burrito, and Oliver. Oil God, what's up? George, thank you. Dave, nice to hear from you. And so, hey, as always, thank you for hosting. Uh, I love a few of the items that Dave said, and I have an issue with one. Um, so if you may, I'm going to start with the things that I love. And then Dave, if you can, I'll actually help encourage you to step into a part of the uh, equity market that I know George is already smiling at because he knows I'm going to be promoting. So all hail the Canadian oil mafia. Love uh, the energy trade and obviously your doubts on the renewables. Um, you know, and this allows me to just clarify a thesis of the Canadian oil mafia and why we think that this trade is still very, very, very early. 
Um, you know, the Canadian energy market, the whole proposition stems on valuations and free cash flow, which we continue to see improve every fucking day with commodity prices over $70, let alone 90 or even 100, which is what it reached this morning. So, you know, many of Canada can, you know, in the Canadian names can privatize within the next three to five years, obviously pay down all their debt and issue massive dividends and dividends for all my friends on this call over the age of 60 is exactly what you're looking for, are you not? Now, what, what, what I take issue with is the, you know, the quote of what you know, the younger people should be you know, focused on in terms of changing the world. Well, without wanting to dissuade you, David, from packing your swim trunks to join us in Mexico, my issue is what uh, we think young people should be doing to change the world. And what we're learning today is the world is fucked. And all we are seeing today is virtue signaling from the haves versus the have-nots, and they protect the power and financial interests first. And that starts with what they need to sell to get votes. Ukraine was highly avoidable. To give a dictator that much leverage after years of fighting wars overseas that all, of, that all surround around the most valuable commodity on the planet next to water is absolutely insane. Putin should not be the only politician worrying about their future. Now, two questions I have for Dave. And third, if it is a longer one. But what would you tell the young people today to save the world? Because the Canadian oil mafia's goal is to share the message of what Canada and our energy markets can do to change the world. And if you look into those free cash flows, perhaps you'll join our ship. The second question I have is, what worries you with respect to the oil trade? The only thing that I can hear that makes any logical sense is government intervention and taxes on speculation. And the only reason I'm, I'm not a proponent of that, aside from my obvious biases, is that I didn't see them do any sort of tax on these biotech companies with vaccines that they were very confident on. So your thoughts there would be appreciated. But the real question I have, given your experience, is the counterparty risk in fixed income markets. We're starting to see companies like the Pacific Investment Management Company take write downs in Russia. And I don't think that 60-40 portfolio that you were talking about at the beginning, and I know you, you're not a fan of it, is, is, is going to be prepared for if the bond market, quote unquote, shits its pants. I'm going to put myself back on mute. All hell. So, Dave, there's a lot to unpack there. I don't know what part of that you want to take first, Dave. You there? Dave, please unmute yourself. Dave is packing for Mexico. <laughs> so, when, when, can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you now. Go ahead, Dave. I don't know what part is, just keep jumping all over the place. Yeah, just, I don't know what part of the, I don't know which question you want to take first. Oil God said well, there's a lot to unpack there. So any part? Uh, of I think I missed the part where he where he supported me, but I cut the part where he questioned me. Um, I don't disagree with any of that. The sixty forty for me is somewhat of a metaphor, and that is I just think it's a terrible mistake in your mid twenties to become a trader unless you want to be a professional trader. I, you know, if if I if I did that. So, so when, when I, so I graduated from Cornell as a genetics major, I went to get a PhD in organic chemistry and, and, and I, I got my PhD in two and a half years. And then, and then I got tenure Cornell. I couldn't have done any of that if I was dicking around with any of this other stuff. And so you, you just, it's, so I just don't want the young guys to get swallowed by the markets. Because the markets aren't, they, they need to be building careers. And that's what, so that 60-40 is not the right thing. I'm just saying 
save your learn how to save your money and, and be more generic. And if you, you want to go energy, great. And, and by the way, the, the Canadian, you know, going private, that all makes sense to me that, that that's, you know, if they, if they get cheap enough, just say, screw it. We're buying our company back. I totally get that. And, so, and that's why I like energy. That's, yeah, so, that's the idea of hanging on to energy, of hanging on to it no matter what. No matter what price it goes to, you hang on to it because it's a good goddamn so, so, Dave, let, let me follow up all God's question a different way. If you were – okay, so, so, so hey, first thing, I, I think you need you guys think need to think about uh, having an induction ceremony, making uh, column one of us, a Canadian oil mafia. Oil God, do you, do you think he qualifies oil God? Do, could, can we get this guy? <laughs> Dave sounds like a fantastic person. We will see Dave in Mexico. Um, Dave, listen, I know you couldn't hear lots of what I said, uh, but really it, it is to do with the fact that we have a mission here in Canada. Yes, of course, we'd like to line our pockets, but the situation in Ukraine was highly avoidable. And what, when, what, I, what I have the biggest beef with is the fact that none of the Western politicians are really running for their lives. And I think when it's all said and done, and you're absolutely right, and they, they, you know, it's not even a period of two decades. You've had inexperienced actors as politicians. You know, when they bankrupt these countries, you know, Canada is a ex- perfect example. It's going to become Japan. We have nothing to do but speculate in real estate. And so um, I want to pass it over to you. I want to thank you. But, George, you're right. Absolutely. More uh, all aboard. More welcome. All right. Okay. All right. So now we're doing uh, Energy Burrito and then Oliver. And then uh, Bobby J and Three Aces Energy Burrito, welcome. What's up? Thanks, guys, for hosting. Uh, <clears throat> what an awesome space! And, and thanks, Dave and Sohib for for hosting. Um, regrettably, I do have a sixty forty portfolio. Uh, what you might applaud about it is it's sixty percent Canadian oil companies and forty percent uranium. So <laughs> just a bit of a, <laughs> a different model. Um, we've we've touched on on oil and. Um, Geez, what a what a day today! I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about the uranium trade, and, and maybe I'll walk back just sort of my own quick thesis, and then what you think about it. Um, the way that I look at this trade from the beginning was was about global energy consumption as a whole, and and so what I discovered was demand on global energy has been quite um, pretty easy to predict over the long term. And it's the supply that seems to be where where you see the marginal cost go go up and down. And so when you when you sort of peer it back, what you discover is every energy source that we've ever had, we've never consumed less of. We've never consumed less coal or less oil or less wind or solar, anything. We've never actually curtailed any energy consumption. So if maybe you can get on board with the demand side going up incrementally, let's call it 1% per year, even during COVID, um, and you land wherever we're going to land when the when the economy fully opens up, where, where my mind landed very quickly was oil, of course, and then uranium. And where I landed on uranium was it's in a structural deficit. The demand is outstripping supply. And then really sort of the vector in the sector for, <laughs> that's funny, the vector in the sector for me right now is... Um, is this incremental uh, secondary demand. People talk about secondary supply in the uranium space, but we've got Sprott Physical Uranium Trust gobbling up uh, millions and millions of pounds. These are pounds that are real and and they're never coming back to the market. And so that's where my thesis really got exciting. 
you can mix in some other stuff. And then just most recently, many people on this call might not know this, but Russia um, is responsible for about 40% of the enriching process. Uh, and that's, that's what you need in order to get rods into reactors. And if that supply chain gets uh, out of sorts, I think we're in for a really interesting ride. Well, I, 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 I agree with everyone. Part of the problem is my answers are incomplete. And as a consequence, someone notices I've missed something. Um, I tried to buy Sprott as soon as it showed up. And again, it wasn't available, at least through the brokerages that I have. It, it, I don't know what these brokerages are doing. I, I got Maybe I got to get another broker. But, uh, but it wouldn't let me buy URA. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll wait patiently. I don't care. Um, and that's when I started going with Gehring and Rosenschweig just to buy uranium miners. Um, I, I think one of the underlying themes here is that the old economy, uh, which uh, uh, has been so neglected, that it's going to take a decade to to get up to speed to start providing the supplies that we need. And I agree with you about the energy. If we ever have a decrease in the world's energy consumption, it means we're in a Great Depression 2.0. And so, uh, and I do not believe that you. I I, I started reaching out to energy anal, uh security energy security analysts. These are the guys, you know, sort of feeding the Davos crowd or something, and asked them, can these alternatives ever? fill the void and they said no they said not a chance and uh and so we i think the fossil fuel story is still absolutely alive and well i have a theory and this i i go down rabbit holes better than anybody i think one of my theories is that that we're going to have a massive energy crisis and it's going to be an engineered crisis just like the covid crisis just like the climate change crisis just like you name it crisis i tell you if you're not going back through the last 50 years of history and checking your narratives for for veracity you you've missed an important point here i don't think any of the shit we've been told through the years is worth a damn but but i think we're going to have an energy crisis i think it's going to be engineered and i think it's going to be used instead of getting people to sign off on uranium and on on nuclear in some sort of incremental way where you say, okay, and you, you have all these battles, you have all these NIMBY arguments, you have all these, you know, not in my backyard, not, you know, I don't want it, this is dirty, this is dangerous. You screw everyone so badly that they beg for it like a booster shot. And, and they say, just give me the booster and give me the goddamn uranium-based energy because my house is cold and I, my car won't run and my electric car won't run. And so if you enter an energy crisis with the idea that you are going to then bring in nuclear fast, that's how I do it. Thanks, Dave. That's terrific. Thank you. All right. By the way, yeah. Dave, 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 before we go any further, um, I've gotten two back channel messages from two different people, and maybe they're looking in the wrong place, Dave, but two people have sent me back channel messages um, to the effect that when they try to go to peakprosperity.com, they're getting this launch in progress message. Is that the wrong place to go? They're going on your Twitter page, but where should they be going? Where should they be going? Well, if you search my name, David, David column and you're in review and then you, and, 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 and then you'll, you'll see, you'll see uh, different years worth and just, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, Dave, I get it. But just so you know, to the extent that you have 80,000 plus followers on Twitter, and that's probably a way that a lot of people access you just know when, when they try to go to the link that you have on your Twitter page, 
it's it's it, it, it's sending him to a bad place. Oh, well, I've been to it as recently as a day ago, so I have no idea. I'll I'll check it. Maybe well, maybe while we're while we're talking, you can go double check because I had two I people, will do it right. I now. had two people message me. They want to read your stuff, but they're frustrated because. You know, they, uh, in fact, I'll send you a back channel uh, screenshot of what they sent me. Okay, so no, no, I'll just check it right now and see if it, if it's going through my. All Twitter. right, all right, all right. That's great. So, three. So I know you want to talk, but we got to uh, follow up order here. So I want, I want uh, Oliver. Always good to hear you. Uh, your perspectives. We're going to do Oliver first on energy. I imagine that's what he's going to want to talk about. And then Bobby J. Uh, I think particularly on credit and, and and what's going on in fixed income. Yeah, the, the peak prosperity right now is screwed up. There's something wrong. All right. Okay. So oh, long- they're, they're switching. They're switching platforms. So it could be a day where they're doing some rollover. All right. As, 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 long, as long as you know about it. So is there another, is there another way day people can, can find you? Just Google your name. What should they do? Well, my, my, my email is Delta Bravo, Charlie DBC six at Cornell.edu. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, and my Twitter feed is David B. Column, C-O-L-L-U-M. Right. Well, well, Dave, let me ask you this. Is there another link you may want to put up on your Twitter feed so people can get to the right page or is it still going to take them the wrong page? Uh, well, I could, I could I could probably go the trouble of uh, Zero Hedge posts it, so I could probably find it at Zero Hedge. All right. Well, wait, 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 listen, as long as you know about it, you'll fix it. I'm not worried about it. All right. No, let, let's, let, let's go on with the show. So we were going to do, I think it was Oliver and then uh, Bobby J. Oliver, what's up, man? Hey, George. Awesome room again. Uh, Dave, great to meet you. And by the way, uh, George, I just sent you the PDF of that year in review. Um, yeah, I'm a fan, Dave. So uh, you have that file, George, if you if anyone in the room needs it. Um, so real quickly, my I guess my question and, and also um, statement here is George hosted me a couple weeks ago in, in one of these rooms. And uh, we we're just talking about the unfolding energy crisis that's, that's been playing out. Basically how everyone's been conned into this whole story of uh, green energy. It's going to you know, save, save the world, kill oil demand. We're all going to be driving EVs, et cetera, which obviously isn't the case. It's, uh, that's what we've, we've been saying for quite a while. But one of the things that I, I talked about, and um, I, to just give you some background, I, I work with Mike Rothman. He was... Uh, head of energy at ISI, Merrill Lynch, um, been going to OPEC meetings 36 years. Oh, yeah. Years. I, I, okay, Oliver, I'm going to try a bad joke. Oh, yeah, he's the shyster that came up with missing barrel stuff, right? That guy? I, I yeah, heard him on so, Twitter. So. He, he's an idiot, that guy. Yeah, right. Go yeah, so, so that you, you know where I'm going, George. Um, so, Dave, and, and I know you, you love going down the rabbit hole and – to your credit, the uh, your year in review, I've, I've sent it around to a ton of people and said, guys, just do yourself a favor and read this. So one of the rabbit holes that, uh, that we've been down since uh, 2014 on the uh, oil market side is really the, uh, the IEA, the International Energy Agency. They've been totally gaming the system with regards to the demand numbers they publish every month. And I mean, long, long story short, this is uh, just a situation where oil demand is being consumed at a much higher rate than anyone thinks is, is possible. And we've seen these huge inventory draws. I mean, 2021 was, was a rec- record year since July 2020, where we're down about 700 million barrels. And, and that's just no one thought that was coming. And one of the key reasons is oil demand is much higher than anyone thought possible. And that really ties back to some regard to IEA, 
they've been publishing this misleading data since 2014, where they say oil demand is, is a certain number, and they, uh, they use a model that's uh, econometric, how they arrive at it, not too sure, but basically Mike Rothman, he, uh, he does a reconciled oil balance. So we, we see the barrels, we see what the demand number is, and we've been in a situation where we've been positioning our clients and saying, hey, IEA, they're, you know, they're full of it. These numbers are simply wrong. No one believed us, um, thought, thought we were crazy. And this is actually an issue that goes back to 87 when Mike was at uh, one of his first OPEC meetings. In uh, 98, he spoke in, uh, he had a piece in the Wall Street Journal titled, um, Where are the 300 million barrels of missing oil? And then this episode, since 2014, there were, by Mike's estimation, over 2 billion barrels of oil unaccounted for. And the IEA, they just, you know, threw it in this miscellaneous to balance line item. And really, no one out there calculates their, their own supply-demand balance. They just use the IEA as fact because, hey, it's a government or organization. It's, it's there. I'm just going to use it, slap my logo on it. But that, that's really misled the whole investment community. So on Friday, I think February 11th, they came clean. They, uh, they revised demand up by 1.9 billion barrels all the way, wow. back, to, all the way back to 2007. So wow. this, this issue and, you know, the, uh, the conspiracy, the, the whole problem here is that they, they put it on the second bullet point of their monthly update. Every, every month, the, uh, the IEA has their OMR. Um, they, they release it at 4, 4 a.m., and it says that what's going on in the markets. But every month we've said, hey, they haven't revised demand up yet. Hey, they haven't done it yet. It's coming. And lo and behold, we're in this massive energy crunch. And the IEA, February 11th, they revise up their numbers. But on the second bullet point, they say, hey, there was some, uh, some discrepancies with Saudi Arabia and China and how we count barrels. It was just a total BS excuse. And then you read into the report and, and they just they just gloss over it. No, no attention to it. And structurally, this is one of the, the biggest issues that has been facing the oil markets since 2014, but also why we're in this massive situation where oil prices are so high. So fr from my perspective, I think the, uh, the IA, they, they had to come clean at some point and oil prices are running, running. And, and you know, it's kind of like the, uh, the tide was going out and we, we see who's swimming naked. So <laughs> they had to. Yeah, so, 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 so Oliver, let me ask you this. It's highly very difficult to forecast, but what do you guys think is, is the, I mean, I know you, you forget about the next few days, next few weeks, you've been, you've been alone. I, I know you, you, you stole everything from Josh Young's. So, whatever, <laughs> but, um, but, 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 but what's your take about, um, You've been very big on this uh, uh, inventories being the intersection of supply and demand and, and falling inventories mean rising price. And, and I'm just kind of curious. I know Mike does that regression thing like where should oil be now based on your miles? But more importantly, um, looking at how the demand and supply picture is changing, where do you think if you had the blue sky? Not that people are going to quote you on this, but if you had to do like min max probable blue sky, where do you think energy prices might be six or 12 months from now? So I think to get to that answer, I mean, you know, you can do a, a kind of setters paribus. Everything held even. How high will oil prices go? But I, I really think it's a point 
until the, the economy crashes. So I, I think the call on, on oil prices is actually very related to the call on the economy because oil prices will just keep going higher until something in the economy cracks. So you can make the argument that one, oil prices are going to be the, the catalyst that ultimately cracks the economy or something else will crack the economy and, and oil prices will tumble. Which one will it be? I, I'm not sure. But as we saw um, in, in previous run-ups, I mean, we, we hit 147.50 um, before the financial crisis. And the thing is, prices were going to keep going higher. It was so not oil. So, Oliver, let me just interrupt for a second. Can you just rehearse, because I remember reading enough of Mike's stuff, like every, what is it, 50 million barrels or 100 million yeah, barrels so, so, is, so, is every, worth like every, seven or eight bucks in the oil yeah. price. Could you just recite that for people, please? Yeah, every 50 million draw, barrel draw in um, in OECD inventories adds about, I mean, it, we used to say eight bucks, seven bucks. It's, you know, say say, say seven bucks to be conservative. Um, so, so if we're seeing, you know, draws the magnitude that we are, Oil prices are headed higher because there's there's an inverse correlation, direct inverse correlation between inventories and oil prices. So if, if our forecast is for inventories to keep drawing significantly, then we're going to see a sharp, sharp rally in oil prices. And a lot of people want to make the excuse, so it's Russia, geopolitical risk. But according to our models, our, what we call our micro model, um, Mike's saying that, that we're actually at fair value right now. His, uh, his micro model is saying about yeah. 104.50. And then let me let, let, let me let me let me go on just because you know I believe myself for a long time. Just to put it in context, and again, there's not a single point prediction is not really useful. But I, there's two things I think you should highlight um, that maybe are lost in the room. One, you know, you mentioned every 50 million barrels is worth seven or eight bucks in the oil price. I mean, Christ, if they do the 60 million barrel strategic petroleum reserve release, which is nothing really. I mean, and that gets chewed through. I mean, that's 60 million barrels. That's like you know. Just to put it in context, if you reduce, you know, that, that according to your model, Salaris Paribus will be seven or eight bucks on the oil price, number one. But number two, more importantly, just min-max probable, like the way you look at it, forgetting about Russia, assuming like, you know, just going the way back machine two weeks ago before all this started, you were looking for what? Uh, how many hundreds of millions of barrels draw this year? If you'd rather not get into it, that's fine. I'm respectful. You don't want to give away everything. But you were looking still for a pretty significant draw on inventories this year, were you not? Yeah, I, I mean, we totally have, and, and that we've been expecting a very large draw. And uh, you know, to, to Mike's credit, he he really has been calling this since we we positioned our, our clients October twenty twenty, um, told them to get long oil related equities, and um, you know that that was probably the uh, one of the earliest shops on the street to to make that call. Um, but our forecast was really based on, I mean, a, a few key factors. How's OPEC playing into it? U.S. shale not rebounding, oil demand much higher than forecast, and a consequent large inventory draw. Now, looking out into this year, the, the question is, okay, do we expect that to continue? And all signs are pointing towards yes. I mean, the uh, U.S. oil data that, that came out yesterday, the 914 data, actually showed a drop in U.S. production for December. So people are calling for this huge, huge increase in shale production to save the day. That was wrong. It continues to be wrong. City was out about two weeks ago uh, at Morse saying, hey, we're going to get into this massive oversupply because U.S. shale is, is going to come ripping back. Russia is going to come ripping back. And we were like, God, this, this, what the hell is going on here? This is not the case. Just look at the decline rates in shale. 
look at the second derivative, look at the geology. And I, I think people just are making a forecast to make it. But at, at the same time, the IEA, which circles back to the, the missing oil discussion, the IEA has been calling for an oversupply of oil in, in Q1. So you would expect oil prices to fall. And we're just seeing massive draws in January, massive draws in February. So coming in with this SPR release, I mean, we, uh, I actually just posted it to our Twitter page today. It's like throwing coconuts at a freight train. It's not going to solve the structural issue. And it ties back to, Dave, your point about the impending energy crisis. Well, I think my point is it's here. And this SPR release just shows desperation. The SPR release, the 50 million barrels that was announced in December and November, that showed desperation. So people who are kind of clued into this, I, I think they're like, okay, where's the oil going to come from? Really yeah, only... Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll release one thing, because I'm sorry to interrupt you, as I always do. The old Jewish saying, never interrupt. No. <laughs> don't interrupt. Don't interrupt me while I'm interrupting you. Um, so let's just go to the oil price, because people get anchored. Um, and, and go back to your 147.50 in 2008. Both, I know you've done a lot of work. Um, well, a couple of things. A, inflation adjusts that. I mean, it strikes me you're probably talking to 200. But then looked at it another way. You've done a lot of work, I know, in terms of the oil burden on the economy and what percentage of GDP it goes to before it causes the economy to contract. And aren't we still some ways away from that? Yeah, um, to- totally spot on there. Um, and I think if you look at the peak, uh, the 147.50. If you turn that into dollars today, we're around to 220, a little bit above 200. So, I mean, that that just makes makes the case that okay, we we uh, the oil prices we experienced before, like we can handle them. And and a lot of the pushback we're getting from from the bears are like, ah, prices are going to kill demand, inflation, all of that. But we really don't see that playing out because yeah. if, if if you look at our oil burden analysis, and this is something uh, Mike Rothman has, has been running for a while, you just look at energy as an expenditure of GDP in the uh, emerging markets and the developed markets. And uh, until we get north of really $130 oil, $150 oil, you're not going to really see, start seeing massive demand destruction. And that would put gasoline prices at maybe five bucks a gallon here in, here in the U.S. So, so we have a ways to go. Yeah. So um, Oliver, can you just hold it for one second? Yeah. I mean, we, 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 this is not a democracy, as, as I've often told people. People actually like that because the way I, I, Dave, Dave, just hold on for one second here because I want to, I want to totally get you over to the Canadian oil mafia side before, and then, then we're going to put you on the spot. So um, I want to stay with this energy thread. So Bobby J, if you could just hold it, Abe, just hold it. I want to stay with this energy thread, and I want our good friend Naif, who's a friend of this room, and he's in here a lot. And I'd like to, for him, he's very knowledgeable on energy and, and whatnot. Um, we haven't spoken for a couple of weeks. Maybe give us your updated thoughts, Naif, about Oliver's thoughts about the oil markets, et cetera, et cetera. So, Naif, if you're there, the floor is yours. And, George, if, uh, if I can ask Dave one question before, uh, before after, whenever. Just yeah, yeah. No, Oliver, I'll, I'll come right back to you. So, Naif, are you there? Are you there, Naif? Hey, George. How are you doing, my friend? Good, good, good. Always good to hear from you. We, we, this room has been on fire this morning with so many smart people. I'm just kind of curious if you could throw your two cents. I mean, I'm sure you heard, heard Oliver talk about cornerstones, you know, Mike Rothman's view. I'm a huge fan. I'm just curious what your perspective is, where you'd agree, where you, where you would disagree on the energy markets. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, just I heard, uh, no, I mean, I joined late, but uh, I heard some of the discussions uh, related to IEA uh, when it comes to uh, SBR. But uh, look, I, I think we have, we have a huge uh, problem with, with those reports that uh, come from uh, IEA. I mean, we we know what happened in, in January. We, we, we that the report that uh, missed two hundred million barrels. That it's a huge uh, mistake. That I don't know if it's a mistake or something else. But let's let's uh, let's call it uh, missing uh, barrels right now. Two hundred million barrels uh, were missing. But the other point, and I think we talked about it earlier. We talked about it how uh, how being a specialist and SMEs expert how you can miss the amount of barrels uh, with the large amount in in a technical a professional report that that uh, raise a red flag to me and raise a, a big question mark in 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 my head, but. Uh, I, I I need to just refer to something that we touched base it earlier, probably a couple of months and and or maybe more than a couple of months, uh, George and Suhaib when when I first joined uh, the those uh, great sessions on uh, on a, the Twitter Spaces when I told everybody that we we will hit the three digits and everybody was kind of a shock. That we how we can reach to to that level at that time. I think when we talked the the first time was about seventy seven dollars uh, or uh, at that range, and the reason we believed at that time that no no one uh, was seeing that we are heading to the three digit probably was a shock for everybody because we know there is a deficit. We know where the uh, global demand is heading to. We know about the uh, decrease on the production rates within Obica Plus. We know that the, the, the spare uh, capacity is declining in Obica Plus, so we don't see anything that could compensate uh, and approach the gap between the demand and supply that we will hit in 2022. That now everybody will say, okay, we we hit the crisis, yes, but we uh, we anticipated that we will reach to the three digits uh, because of the market fundamentals. If we look to the demand uh, in twenty twenty two, we will have about four million two hundred thousand barrel a day uh, increase. Uh, a year on year when it comes to the global uh, demand on on oil while while we with the, the the spare capacity that we we see right now it's about three million so uh, plus what we what we see right now is a decrease and decline in the production rates in the key and major uh, producers in within uh, of a Blossa group. If we look to Nigeria, they have a huge problem, which is a security problem that with, with, the, with the thieves, they trying to uh, steal the oil. If they couldn't steal the oil, they, they damage uh, the, the facilities, they damage the structure, infrastructure of the oil, uh, uh, oil facilities over there. 
shell is uh, is preparing to to leave so they couldn't they couldn't come to the quota kazakhstan uh, producing about uh, 1 million 300 uh, something right now they should go to 1 million 600,000 uh, barrel a day they they are uh, lagging behind the behind the production rate angola uh, probably saudi and 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 uae uh, uh, they have a spare capacity but i don't think it's enough to compensate the gap between the demand and supply that we anticipated for 2022 now the IEE is telling us right now that uh, that we have uh, we have enough oil and we have enough supply uh, and we can use the SPR to moderate the price. I don't know how if it's in November, the White House and plus five countries decided to uh, release uh, more than 52 perils and the price hasn't been gone anywhere but up. So the price kept raising and kept going up and, and the driver was, like I said, it's, it is the, because the market sees that we will hit to a, diff, the, a, a gap between the, the supply and demand. So 52 million perils in November, India uh, said we will release 5 uh, million barrels, uh, South Korea, Japan, uh, UK, uh, everybody joined in, in, in those SPRs uh, release and, and announced in Japan in, in December, they told everybody that we will release 600,000 barrels uh, from uh, SPR. But what, what that did for the market? If we look, if we look back, what what was the effect that that happened in in the last two uh, months? Nothing, but the price went up, and because this is is get it has a temporary effect, is not strategic. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the decline in the production rate. It doesn't it doesn't uh, compensate the raise. On the on the and the global demand that we anticipated. By the way, OPEC said that the the year on year increase in the global demand is going to be uh, about four million to two hundred thousand barrels a day. But and I think it's a conser- conservative. I think we will go even beyond this number. Uh, and because of the recovery that we are seeing now, we, we are dealing with the crisis right now between Ukraine and, and Russia, and there is a lot of dynamics. And that, well, those dynamics that, that are playing right now, I think will take the price up, not down. Because now we see, uh, we see the sanctions. If you sanction Russia, Though, and, and Russia is producing uh, about 10.5 million barrels a day and export about 6 million to the global market, who's going to compensate Russia? If you prevent uh, Russia from going to the global market and have access uh, uh, to, to, to oil markets, who nobody, nobody can compensate 
the uh, the oil from Russia. Uh, it's a six million. Let's say okay. Let's it's, it's it is probably the 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 highest uh, uh, forecast. Let's say five million. Nobody even five million can compensate uh, uh, the oil from Russia. So uh, and and the gas now. If you look to the price right now in the gas. Well, every time we get higher price in the gas, that means like there are some consumers, they are moving and shifting to oil because the equivalent barrel from gas right now, it's about $250 plus minus. It's better for any consumer right now to move to buy oil because it's $100. Now it's $107. But if they buy gas right now, it is it costs them, it costs them up two hundred fifty. So I mean, from economic perspective and financially, it's it's will it will be advantage to them to uh, as a consumers to move to uh, to uh, to the oil because it's even if it's too high, a hundred seven right now, it's still cheaper than the gas. So we and and what that tells us that tells us there will be more demand that comes from the gas market to the oil, which will increase the global uh, demand. So uh, yes, yeah, so, so naive. This is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant summary. Let me ask you one question. So if I hear you correctly, basically what you're saying is that oil prices, again, trying to call short-term oil prices are fools there, and I get all that. But as crazy as it may seem to the average person. What you're basically saying is oil prices are going to continue to go up until, I mean, there's nothing stopping oil prices from rising right now. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yes, yes, because if it's not going even beyond what we, we, we anticipated, everybody, look, if, if the sanctions, now the sanctions start touching the oil in, in Russia, uh, Canada, UK, UK, my prime minister, mentioned uh, the other day that we need to cap uh, the oil export from Russia. What does mean cap? May they they wanna they wanted to just cap it out, meaning that we, we need we need to limit the amount of uh, Russian oil from going to the market. That will have a, a tremendous pressure on the supply and that will go with that the price will go up for sure. Because it is driven by the deficit between the, the, the supply and demand. That's great. Okay, so Naif, stay right there. It's brilliant. I'm sure you'll get some questions. I want to go back to Oliver. Oliver, are you there? Oliver? Oliver Parsons, are you there? It's not. All right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm okay, here. Sorry. Okay, so, so I had, had you on mute there. Yeah, it's all right. So, Oliver, um, I know you had a question for Dave. And and, 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 and and the dialogue's made that much richer by what Naif was saying. I don't know if you know Naif, or maybe you have a question or comment for Naif um, as well as Dave. So, so Oliver, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, George. And Naif, great to meet you. Um, yeah, we should, we should connect. I, I don't think I'm familiar, um, but uh, let's do that at some point. And, and Dave, I... I just kind of want to grind your gears here a little bit because you're, uh, you know, you're, you're the pro going down these rabbit holes. And I just really don't know if you're, you're kind of aware of how much bullshit is being thrown around in, in the oil markets. Um, so I, I guess my, my one question for you, and as I have explained the, the whole missing barrels thing, 
everyone thought it was a you know we we were nuts mike Rothman was you know out to lunch on this shit and it proved out totally as expected massive revision in uh in global demand so i i guess my question to you is on I mean, from where you stand and, you know, your, your relationships across not just energy, but through various people in all industries, do, do you see anything that really, you know, raises any red flags and you're saying, what, what the hell is going on outside of, you know, the, the whole, what, what I say, everyone got drunk on the, the green ESG Kool-Aid. Um, outside of that brainwashing of the consensus, do you, do you see anything that, uh, that runs deep that, on the energy side, energy security, um, because it, this whole thing has, has been gamed. And as a kind of as a side note, I'm, I'm not familiar if, if you're familiar with um, a guy by the name of Tony Tony Saba, George. I, I think you and I have, have talked about this guy. I I brought him up in my discussion a couple weeks ago. But um, you know, Kathy Wood, Art, the whole that whole investment just collapsed. And one of the the poster guys of, of that movement was uh, Tony Seva, some ESG, EV, thought leader, whatever you want to call it. He gets on for the, uh, the 2019 Robin Hood conference, and he comes out on stage, and this is you know, hedge fund, private equity, big-time big players, and he, he pretty much says in 2019, we're going to be living in a world of the Jetsons by 2025. We're going to have an automated fleet, no one's driving, you kind of have a car that you pay a subscription for, it picks you up, EV, and oil demand is going to collapse by 30 million barrels a day. Totally wrong. And he kind of created this whole, whole straw man argument that was just totally wrong based on forces in New York City in 1908. I was just like, okay, what the hell is that about? And, and I, you know, from my perspective, you just see so much just shit being thrown out there. So I, I don't know if if you have any perspective from, from where you stand on, on things that you might see as real issues behind the scenes. Um, let me bullet some response. I heard a lot of stuff there. Um, I cut my teeth in the oil markets reading about peak oil two decades ago. So I read every book, every, every blog, I was riding the oil drum. And, and, and when it turned out to not play out immediately, I never once believed that the narrative was wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, when they started fracking, that sort of screwed up the uh, screwed up the analysis a little bit. My understanding is that the frackers were never really making money if they were forced to live in a in a credit world that was normal. And so I, I always had the suspicion that the frackers were being supported as a national security uh, uh, policy. And they said, "Look, we don't care. Let them go into debt. They got to keep fracking. We want we want that oil." Um, I kept hearing all year long about how we're going to have massive energy crisis crises this winter, and I've been waiting to see them. And now all of a sudden you got the Ukraine thing, which is going to provide a lot of false narratives to explain away things that, that are embarrassing. I didn't know anything about the missing barrel, so that's totally news to me. That had gotten by me, which I'm a little surprised, but, but I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah, I'll um, shoot, shoot you some stuff on it. It's, I it's, would love to see that. It's, it's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oliver, you have a homework assignment because we're going to get this Dave guy, and he's a smart guy, and we're going to have him as a fully paid-up member of the Canadian Law Mafia. So, <laughs> so Oliver, on board. Oliver, you got you got to work this guy over. Send him some zingers from Mike. 
And, and Dave, what I want to know is from you, I'm going to interrupt with a question here on my own. Let's stipulate for one second that Oliver speak truth and that he speak truth, okay? I've known Oliver for a good while. I've known Mike Rothman for 30-odd years, okay? I'm 100% in that camp. But if, but if you just did a thought experiment, okay, we give the truth serum. And I said to you, Dave, what these guys are telling you is the truth. You just learned something. How does that change your picture of the world and, 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 and your assessment of the investment landscape, Dave? Well, I'm not as surprised as you might think, because one of my rabbit holes that I went down is is the notion that let's let's imagine Davos guy. Let's imagine these guys can see the world better than than we can. And uh, and and one of my models for what we're seeing in the world is that these guys are looking at resources, saying there's just not enough. You've got China rising, you got India rising, you got U.S. is gluttonous already. We don't have enough resources, period. And, and it's not just oil, it's just all energy, it's all, it's lithium, it's you name it. Um, what would you do if you came out the next day and said that? We'd have World War III immediately, or we'd have panic or whatever. So what you do is you create a climate crisis and you tell everyone, no, 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 we're not running out of energy. You have to save the world by not consuming. And so to me, the climate crisis could be a concocted narrative to get us used to the idea that we're not going to get what we well, Dave, you could totally be right. But I also think that Dave Collum at 35, you know, he may not be for the 60-40 traditional balanced portfolio. He may like Energy Pareto's 60-40, you know, oil uranium portfolio. Because, like, you know, you, you're an independent thinker. You have a variant perception. This is a very variant perception. You have a bunch of political you have a bunch of investment um deviants in this room this is our own private record so let me explain what i would do in a, a slightly different scenario go ahead if i wasn't looking at a what i thought would be a all boats sink secular bear market and i and i was let's say i had to invest money and i was going to go all in on some form of investment instead of cash I would do exactly what you're saying. Those are the only things I see. I see gold, so, I see energy, right, I see so, 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 so Dave, you and I have really have been in rooms together, but trade I've been banging on for, for months, and I think most of the cane oil mafia would signs up for this. Like, you know, go all in on the oil, but to hedge yourself against everything goes down, short Kathy Wood. I mean, you know, like that trade, That the, the only thing better than the cane oil mafia returns has been long Canadian energy short Kathy Woods. All right. So well, I don't short anymore. I've shorted three times. Yeah, but Dave, you don't have to short. There's something called S Arc. You know about S Arc, Dave? Yeah. Okay. So no. S Arc yes. yes, no. is basically it, it's a long product, it's an ETF which does the opposite of Kathy Wood. So by going long S Arc, you are short Arc. But again Yeah, I I, I just you know so I tried to do that with bonds. So twice I made good money shorting. So I shorted in 99 and I think I, I think I cleared it out around 0203. So that was perfect. And then I shorted around 05 and, and I don't remember exactly where I was at, but I can tell you, I did a little math. The Dow, the, I, I, I sold the short position. I liquidated seven times, seven different allocations and the average Dow was 6,700. So that gives you an idea how, how long time that. But I was lucky as shit. It was a market neutralizing short. It was it was a short with an energy long backing it. And and I just I, I just think a short shorting is for pros and idiots. No, you're right, Dave. All right, so, so let's hold it right there. So Oliver, do you have a follow up question or do, should we move on, Oliver? 
No, we're we're good. You're good. But, uh, All right. Just, so, so, just, I, just I, wanted I, to get Dave's, no, I, I, Dave's, Dave's I radar sure. going. But that. but if I wasn't looking at a secular bear, I'd be much much longer. All these things we've talked about today, much longer. Got it. I, I right. just think that we could all get cut in half. No, I hear you. All right, let's keep the pace up here. I want to get everybody in here, and I've kind of lost track of who's supposed to go. But I'm gonna I'm going to go up energy. Actually, you know what, Je- Jeff Garbaz, are you there, Jeff? Jeff G, are you there? I don't know if Jeff G is there. He may be on a call. Um, Jeff, are you there? Unmute yourself because. Um, I don't want to steal his thunder, but what's really amazing in this... Uh, oh, I'm market... here. Hey, I'm Jeff. Here. Jeff, are you there? All right, I so, am. Yeah, so Jeff, could you... You can talk a little about the market, but what's really interesting, because you know, you've probably been listening to this energy thread. We've had a lot of really smart guys talking about energy with the fundamental side. Could you speak to the technical setup in oil stocks, the psychology? Everyone's like, you know, shouldn't we be selling the lack of... The, the increase in shorting. Could you talk specifically on the energy sector, Jeff, as you see it? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I just did my uh, weekly report, and my uh, my chart of the week is on uh, energy. So for people that don't know, we, we do three things when we build a sector rank. And by the way, energy is now the number one sector, and the worst sector is a 24, which is diversified financials. So to me, that's an, that's an awesome hedge right now with rates continuing to, uh, to drop. Um, but anyway, the average tech rank is up at 80%. Uh, and what we do on the tech rank is we look at how stocks are doing over the last 100 trading days. And we look at the relative strength against the S&P. Um, typically, the highest that a sector ever gets is in the high 60s. So the fact that we made it to 80 just shows you how unbelievable um, the strength is um, in the names. And then the average short rank is now up to uh, to 46. And we were down in the in the 20s this time last year. So people just continue to bet on the short side against energy. And now we have 26% of all energy stocks in a short squeeze. And we have another term we use. Some people on this call may know it. Some people who haven't been don't know it. It's called a long squeeze. It's when a stock is weak technically and no one is short. So as longs go to sell, no shorts cover, and then it just drips to the downside. It just drops and drops and drops and drops. And now only 2% of energy names are in a uh, type four situation. And um, the number of uh, the daily advanced decline line and the number of issues above the 50 day are like at near, near recent highs over the last several years. So energy still looks, it looks awesome to me. Jeff, that's absolutely amazing. And as long as you're on, just give us maybe just a minute or two, your perspective on the market overall, like, you know, we, we, by the way, Dave, Colin, can I ask you when you're not talking to please mute your mic? There's people who are saying there's a lot of feedback. If you, Jeff, Dave, you could just hit the mute button, please. Appreciate that. Thank you. So, so Jeff, just more broader comments on the market, the extent you have any. Anything yeah. So, so we just finished the second month of the year. And after the first month, um, only 19% of stocks were higher, 19.76%. And that's the lowest number by far that we've seen since, um, you know, back in 2020 after the uh, debacle of the pandemic. And uh, I kind of have been like really fast focused on um, October, the end of October of 2020 and looking forward. At that point, we only had 34% of stocks up. And by the end of the year, we got that number to uh, to 52. Um, so you can see, so we went from 19.76 to this last month in February, we're up at 28.69% of stocks higher. 
So we gained roughly 500 stocks that are now up for the year from 1,074 to 1,563. So there is there is some improvement that's uh, that's coming in the work. Um, there's no doubt about it. Certain stocks that have already gotten eviscerated. I, I was talking to George earlier today, and uh, I gave him a good example of something. It's it's almost the equivalent of um, how stupid the shorts have been in um, energy. They're now being in uh, in CrowdStrike, which has a short intensity rank of 100%, and the short ratio is 3.49 days to cover. And they're shorting this thing in the middle of like cyber attacks, you know, being threatened. I'm like, it was the wrong time to short it. The right time to short it when it was closer to $300, but now not down here at $200. It makes absolutely no sense. And then, by the way, they're the only company so far that's been able to thwart every single attack and they got the Fortune 500. So we, uh, we classify shorts um, into what we call smart short sellers and dumb short sellers. And what's so interesting about right now, the one, the one real positive outlook for the market um, is that we, we track each sector and tell you how many short sellers are smart and how many short sellers are dumb. And the majority of the short selling that's being now is being done by dumb short sellers. There are only six out of the 24 sectors that have smart short sellers in them. And then um, 18 where it's being driven by dumb short sellers. And the other, the other point to make here is that, um, yeah, the technicals are pretty bad. They went from being a two out of 10 uh, a month ago to probably now being a four out of 10. So we're definitely getting uh, some improvement with that. But what's, what's interesting also is the absolute number of shares that have increased um, in, the last, in the last year. Um, we're, we're over 20% now in terms of the percentage increase that we're seeing in, uh, in shorts. We're up to, uh, let's, go, let's, go, let's go a year ago this time. NASDAQ had 9312000000 and now we're at $12,306,000,000. And New York went from $12.34 billion to 15.36 billion. And um, so bottom line is people are, are shorting this market. And let, let's say we all woke up tomorrow morning and, and Putin was dead. Someone d- decided to take him out. This market would be up, might be up at least 500 points on NASDAQ tomorrow, I, I would bet, and probably 5,000 points on the, on the Dow. So you got to be thinking about that if you're, uh, if you're shorting stocks. Um, and you better be selective on uh, the type of shorts that you're thinking about. George, is that a good overview for everyone? That's fabulous. So, Jeff, if you could just stay on stage, that'd be great. Um, I'd like to go to Bobby J. We'll come back in energy in a minute, but I want to work people into the mix here. So, Bobby J., are you there, Bobby? Bobby? Bobby J., I don't know if you're there. I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, okay. Could you speak to, speak to what you're seeing in credit? And you and I had a brief conversation about uh, European bank exposure. So maybe from the sort of financial side of things, what do you see going on, Bobby? Yeah, and uh, I want to I want to uh, tee off on something that Dave uh, said that I think is uh, important. Um, but first, um, I'll, I'll mention uh, the banks. Uh, the banks are trading down uh, over the past couple months, or maybe six to eight weeks. Um, not as if they're going to miss earnings, but as if something more important is happening. And I've told you um, that this cycle, um, George, that it's going to be in consumer credit more than it's going to be watching the high yield market. 
uh, double B spreads are probably only about 50 to 70 basis points wider uh, at um, 300. And it's not signaling any kind of credit distress yet. It may be coming. And people who watch HYG are wasting their time. Uh, but some of the bank stocks uh, like Citi, uh, JP Morgan are down uh, in the 20% plus range. Um, and um, I'm sure at Consumer Credit, uh, the, um, the synchronies, discovers, and Capital Ones. And my question for Dave is, I see that inflation, uh, like a pay cut to everybody, is going to cause problems for consumers and consumer credit. Are you in that camp? Yeah, I'm so in that camp that um, uh, there was a comment about how high oil had to go to break the economy. I think the economy is sitting right at the precipice. So I, I don't think oil has to go up much more for this economy to break. We already have a screwed up economy. Um, yeah, I think the consumers are getting crushed. Here's the spookiest thing about I presented this to my hedge buddies. And I said, have we ever gone off of a major market top? which I'm willing to call what we observed earlier this year, um, with society in such a foul mood. Now, usually consumer market tops were all euphoric. So, you know, take the dot-com bubble, for example, and the, 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 the 67 market. Everyone, everyone thinks the world's great. Everyone thinks there's nothing but sunshine, you know, Skittles, rainbow, stuff like that. We are coming off of a top that could turn into a protracted downturn with everyone ready to kill their neighbors. And I just don't think there's a precedent for that. So yeah. the consumer's screwed, I think. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm starting to see it uh, in the price action of some of the, uh, some of the stocks. It's not ringing, you know, um, a Category 5 hurricane yet, but um, it, it, the behavior of these um, stocks is not very well. And, of course, it's something that nobody was talking about uh, six weeks ago that the consumer could be in trouble. And, you know, there's about three uh, axioms that I hear on uh, financial media all the time that just drives me crazy. And one is rates are going up by the banks. Number two, the Fed's going to do 25 or 50. Who, who cares? And uh, number three, Russia is only 1.5 trillion of an economy. And the, the comment I want to make about that is uh, SockGen uh, bank stock is down about 30% from its highs. European bank stocks are weakening. And Russia is part of a credit grid, I will call it, in Europe. And people are looking at direct exposure to Russia and saying, oh, there's no problem. It's the size of Texas and all those other cute sayings. But, you know, that that is not how um, markets uh, can run into problems and liquidity problems and, and other credit problems. I think there's going to be some secondary effects. I um, had touch base with the top uh, equity, European equity analysts um, today, and he still hasn't gotten his head around it. He told me that uh, in, the, in the land of the blind, everybody's blind. And, um, you know, I hear people talking that this is contained. And I think the biggest surprise to Putin is that his advisors were telling him that he does have a fortress balance sheet and he has plenty of reserves and that he was safe. But uh, what else would you tell the guy? 
And um, I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I know there's uh, freezing access to some of uh, Russia's reserves. So um, we're going to see some uh, ripple effects of credit uh, from this whole situation. Well, the other thing is, you know, I've got these anecdotes of, of markets not being not looking. Everyone always says markets are looking forward. If they're so smart, why don't they see the top coming? Um, in 1991, they did a poll of 57 economists and said, what are the odds? Of, are we going to have a recession? All 57 said no. And then the NBER showed that we were six months into one already. Um, so you get stupid things like that. Um, in 2002, I'm taking full credit for this one. I wrote a five-page email to a friend of mine at Goldman, um, the, the head of the software group, Rick Sherwin. And in five pages, I laid out not only the coming collapse of the banking system, but I specifically said, you know, General Electric, General Motors, um, the banking system. Um, and it was because of the subprime crisis that was going to come. And, and I, I, I reread it and going, I don't remember where I got all this information from. Uh, I was watching the pandemic and around uh, the end of January, I started exchanging ideas with guys saying there's this this thing's this thing's not trivial and so i i got an email from david einhorn saying i know you're watching this what do you have for me right and so i told him and then uh, and then i was exchanging emails with with stephen roach and jim bianco and the markets were paying no attention so we were trying to get our brains around this pandemic and the markets kept going up. I've got tweets saying this is crazy. The markets keep going up and this damn thing's coming our way. And I, I know what they're going to do. And this is going to be a mess. So I don't think markets are that smart. <laughs> I think sometimes right. like, for example, remember the 07, I in my class in, in March of 07 to my organic chemistry class, I turned to them one day out of the blue, which I do a lot. And I said, the banking system is about to collapse. And they all looked at me like they were stunned. And and the only evidence I had that I can remember was the market AVX index was dropping unexplic inexplicably. And anyone remember this woman named Tanta who was writing blogs about chaos and the credit market? She's the only one. I think she was at Seeking Alpha or something. I don't know, but it was a, a pseudonym. Oh, I know who you meant. I know who you meant. Yeah, yeah Doris. Tanya. Tanya. She might have been an S&P. I don't know. And she she was writing about it. And so it was clear there was very bad things happening, but the markets weren't seeing it yet, except for the market ABX index, the derivatives index, which should trade at par on eventually, and it just started tanking. And there was no press about it. There was no, you know, there's no CNBC discussion about it, nothing like that. And then eventually it does. So I think we were long overdue for an awful situation irrespective of energy and Putin and all these things. We, we, um, we, in the last 20 years, we grew our corporate debt by seven and a half percent a year. I just don't see how that's sustainable. Right. Right. All right. That's great. Thanks for that. Let's, let's move along here. I want to get, I want to work a lot of people in. So we're going to do, uh, let's see, we're going to do, uh, energy and then Brian and then Abe. Energy blogger Brian and Abe. What's up, uh, uh, Georgia? We we had Abe prior to energy. All right, fine. So we'll do Abe, energy blogger, and Brian. Abe, what's up? Abe, what's up? Uh, thanks very much, George. Appreciate it as always. Great space. Um, so I come from this uh, from a commodity space and, and primarily a capital markets uh, perspective, having been involved in 08. For those of you um, that that I don't know here. Um, so I was part of the structured finance securitization space at uh, at CIBC World Markets, 
and uh, and Coventry thereafter. Um, so uh, I'll look at this a little bit differently. Um, I have to say that, um, and, and right back to oil and commodities and something I said in the space yesterday, um, I don't see commodities um, going anywhere but north at the moment. Um, I can tell you, um, and this isn't anecdotal, it's factual, because um, I, I, I move physical steel. And I've been moving physical steel for 30 years now, 27 to 30 years. I've lost track um, out of uh, Eastern Europe uh, into uh, U.S. and Canadian markets primarily. I can tell you that I've got customers who are basically not tripping over themselves. They're basically literally causing car accidents in order to put orders in because they're shitting themselves. Um, the price of commodities, all kinds of commodities, are under a severe amount of pressure. Um, the uh, whole issue with COVID um, simply exasperated an already problematic um, sector because, you know, we've been fed the the narrative of, you know, I mean, I live in Canada. We've been fed the narrative that, you know, um, you know, the Rust Belt doesn't really matter because, you know, everyone's going to be a computer programmer. And, you know, like myself, we're all going to be investment bankers. And uh, sadly, we don't produce anything. So that's a bit of a problem. Um, and um, these sectors have been globally starved. Um, and the, the, the problem that we're faced with uh, and, and right back to oil, and I've been following these markets for, I don't know, 30 years, is that over the last 10 years, we've had structural capital um, starvation uh, in the uh, energy sector, not just energy, but commodity sector. They have been annihilated, obliterated, left for dead. And unfortunately, or fortunately for some of us, um, what's happened is that uh, we fast forward today and, you know, people seem to think that, you know, I keep hearing all these stories about Putin and this and that and everything else. And you know, I have to tell you, um, everyone else continues to play checkers. This man is uh, absolutely brilliant. We may not like what we see, but certainly uh, very brilliant. Um, I assure you, at the rate that we're going, um, uh, that war will be paid by all the incremental lift in oil and gas. Uh, currently, there are no, no, sanc no sanctions. The, the Northern Europeans are going to freeze their nuts off. Um, they won't be able to power factories. Uh, I can tell you, and this, again, not anecdotal, because I don't want to, you know, spew anecdotal bullshit. Um, I can tell you that I know of three mills that are massive monster mills, okay, in terms of uh, um, uh, steel mills, which require a lot of power. Uh, their total electricity power bills have doubled on a year-over-year -year basis. Now, let that sink in a little bit to you guys. And forget about this $5 and $8 bullshit of, uh, of, oil, of uh, gas and, you know, because it's hit in California. That's nothing. You are now annihilating the actual industrial base of Europe through the process. So anyone who thinks that, that, that anyone in Northern Europe or in Europe is going to put sanctions on Russian oil and gas is not only delirious, but incredibly stupid. Okay because there is no other means for them to get it. And if you're worried about six or seven or $8 gas today, I got news for you. If this thing continues in a protracted fashion, which by the way, I thought at the beginning that maybe Putin wanted a very quick end to this, I'm not so sure that he gives a shit anymore because we are all going to pay for that war in one way or another. 
So I think you need to look at the incremental lift as to where oil and gas is going, how much more money he gets in order to fund this conflict. We got the Federal Reserve that basically doesn't know what the hell they're doing at all. They should have looked at this back in 20. We're now in 2022 with a slowing economy and uh, everyone is protractically screwed at the moment. And so you have to connect all the dots is what I'm trying to tell you. You can't look at these things in isolation. So to sum up, I will say this. We have been running structural supply deficits in the whole commodity space for 10 plus years. We now have inflation. We now have a need and we have no substitution for traditional fossil fuels, oil and gas, because everyone bought the ARC bullshit that all of a sudden we're going to have um, a beautiful transition. Unfortunately, there is no, no, no such thing as a beautiful transition because demand is immediate. That's the issue. Demand is immediate. It doesn't go in a transition, a nice little beautiful little transition. And so, you know, my take in all of this, and I can, I can you know, from what I see, 27, 28 years in commodities uh, and on the M&A side, the, the, we, we have a problem here. We have a really big problem. Uh, and we're, we're now coming out of uh, COVID. And I don't think anyone really figured out what the hell the demand picture was. And make no mistake, I don't think it was an accident uh, that Putin decided uh, to, uh, uh, to invade Ukraine when he did at a time when, when the global environment and where everything was headed from an inflation perspective, okay, was running hot like a son of a bitch. So connect the dots, people, and figure out where we are and where we think we're headed. And my view is that, and it's just my perspective, is that we're going to run higher inflation for much longer, and we better get used to uh, oil and gas uh, and by the way, if Russia, if this whole thing finishes tomorrow, we're still going to run very, very hot. So. Uh, thank, th thanks, Dave. We, we, you echo a lot of the sentiments we've been talking about for months in this room. Uh, I want to pick up on one thing that you said, which uh, ties into something I read that was extremely interesting yesterday. I don't know that I have his permission to send it out, uh, but there's a fellow on uh, Twitter Luke Groman, that's L-U-K-E, last name Groman, G-O-R-M-E-N. If anyone wants to email me, I'm on his distribution list. Um, I think you can get his stuff for free, but he wrote a really good report. Um, and I think if you sign up for his thing, you can get on his thing, it's free. I just want to read to you um, just a couple paragraphs here, because it, it, it hones in on something Abe you said about, you know, this could go on for quite a while. And the title, I mean, everyone's become, you know, military an expert in grand military strategy lately they're completely missing the point this is all captain obvious one-on-one thinking oh he's taking kiev oh he's going to do this oh he's going to do that nobody knows all the talking head idiots are full of shit but this was a really thoughtful piece and one of the best pieces i've read and i'm just going to read a couple bullet points here just to take a minute it says what is putin and xi's grand strategy he's basically saying that xi jinping and putin are in cahoots on this whole thing and the title says he quotes here, he goes, 40 years of globalization, disinflation, and a bomb bull market likely died on Wednesday night. Pax Americana likely ended on Wednesday night. A global market to market of global relative power levels appears to be happening before our eyes. The multi-year, multipolar world has finally born, the multi-currency, multipolar world was likely fully born on Wednesday night. Key points. 
Over this weekend, clients have asked us numerous times what we thought Putin's grand strategy might be. To us, the preponderance of the evidence suggests Putin's grand strategy is as follows. One, we do not think Putin can act without the explicit blessing of Xi, because Putin's entire Ukrainian gamut falls apart if Xi leaves Putin alone. Two, in the aftermath of the U.S. using swift sanctions to destroy Iran's economy in 2012, if Putin goes down, Xi has to know that he and China are next, because without Russian energy and minerals and food, the U.S. can use SWIFT to tame and, if necessary, starve China. Putin and Xi need each other. Three, Putin and Xi likely realize that the combination of peak cheap energy and U.S. U.S.'s and EU's exceedingly fragile fiscal and debt position puts the U.S. and the West more likely into a position where if anything goes wrong anywhere, the Fed and the ECB are likely to have to print large amounts of money, possibly into an energy-driven inflation spike, to contain sovereign bond yields. And four, this in turn informs our view of Putin and Xi's grand strategy. Incite chaos into a peak cheap energy world and the exceedingly fragile U.S. and EU fiscal positions to trigger the systemic reset they and the EU have been publicly calling for since at least 2009. All right, so this is like a 20-some-odd-page report. It takes a long time to read, but the gist of it is he's calling for the end of what's really at stake here is the guys that don't like us read, you know, Russia, China, Iran, that tripartite, uh, the Troika, to try to upend, uh, foster, bring on the the demise of U.S. hegemony. And, um, you know, by holding back, you know, by throwing some of the Russian banks out of SWIFT, and not allowing them access to their money, maybe this brings forth actually the development of alternative to SWIFT. And if we lose, if we lose the ability to continue to price all this stuff in dollars, that's the loss of a huge strategic advantage. And so, hey, what you were talking about before about let this thing drag on, I think the idea of him going, look, I don't know, so I don't pretend to know, but everyone's focused on this first order thinking, you know, oh, he's killing this person, he's destroying that one. I think the aims are much bigger. And I think it'd be just perfect if he were just to kind of like go into Ukraine as they have and do a rope-a-dope, cause a little trouble here, a little trouble there. Don't don't kill a whole lot of people, but, you know, destroy some strategic things. Meanwhile, the price of oil keeps going up. And do not let this thing resolve quickly. Do not let this thing resolve quickly. Drag it out. Because the price of oil will keep, and people will be afraid of the oil, Russian oil barrels disappearing from the market. Drag it out. Drag the price of oil up. By getting the price of oil up and bringing on possibly a session, maybe a stock market crash, that is the way you inflict maximum damage on the West without killing anybody. So I think the element of time here is a crucial one. So, Abe, what do you think of them apples? Um, absolutely. And I, I am a firm believer, um, despite what everyone else is saying, and uh, that um, I think he's realized that the longer he this continues, it becomes... Look, he, he's playing chess, and I, I, I hate to say it, um, I, I think it's kind of checkmate in, in many ways uh, because, you know, to George, to your point, look what's happening, okay? Look what's happening in terms of our own uh, economic environment nor- in North America. Incredibly fragile. We're, you know, we consume like shit. That's what we do. In the, that, that's, our, that's our position in the global, you know, footprint. We're consumers. And so the reality is that he knows this. And he can play the game longer. And the Northern Europeans, as I said, you know, you can't just 
take off six or eight, uh, nine million barrels off the market and think that someone is going to just show up to the party and replace it. It doesn't work that way. Totally, totally agree. Totally agree. So, so, so I think you're going to see longer, you know, my thesis has been this, you know, from a global perspective. Okay. Not, you know, not looking at, you know, just key segments. We are going to have higher inflation for longer. And I believe that you're going to have social ramifications because of it. And there's no question. Yeah, If you don't mind, just because we've gone down that road a million times in these rooms, I want you to stay on stage. We'll come back to it. But we've been through that one a million times. I hear you. I hear you. I want to bring some other people into the discussion. So we're going to do Energy Blogger and then Brian. Energy Blogger, what's up? Hi, George. Are you able to hear me clearly? Yeah, we got you. What's up, man? Hi there. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. I was just going to touch upon on some of the points what the previous speaker Abe did. And uh, I think, see, the Russian oil, we don't even have to ban it. Uh, it has already been struggling. I've just shared one of the tweets. Between Friday until date, the Russians couldn't sell almost 15 million barrels of oil into the market. There was no buyers for their oil. So today the discount was $18 against Brent for each barrel. That is like $150 million discount they gave and no one was there to buy that tender. So the, because the, there is a first thing, there is no available proper available tankers to load it. Then there is no insurance available to do it. And then there is no dollar transaction they can do it for that or a euro transaction they can do it. So they are already struggling to sell the barrels. So between Friday and now, the market is already short by 15 million barrels of crude. So what these buyers are doing, mainly Asian buyers, they are going and asking West African uh, producers and uh, Middle East producers for those barrels. Somebody has to replace that equivalent barrels into the market. So that's where I think IAEA 60 million uh, barrels would help fill in the market. Although I understand the argument when you're trying to take it out of the inventory, you're going to drive the price up. But there is no other option except to do that or clear Iran, take their storages. Something has to be done. But what I would say is we are not even in the summer. The summer demand is going to be even more. Yeah, 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 energy blogger. I think Naive already spoke about that. Is there another point you want to make, make energy blogger? Yeah, I just wanted to say, like, what I will see is, like, uh, because there is a demand for Middle East crudes going up, the the prices, they, they will release the prices this week uh, towards Thursday, and you will see all Aramco, UAE, rising their oil prices by 5 to $6. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. I didn't mean to be rude. Stuff. It's just that there's so many people in the room, and I'm really looking for people to make you know, incremental points, things that haven't been already discussed. So I, I, just, I agree with you completely. I wasn't trying to cut you off. I disagree with you. It's just if you've been in the room for more than an hour, you would have heard that exact point made a little while ago. All right, so let, let's go on. Brian, you're up. What's up, Brian? Thanks, uh, Thanks George. Uh, quick question for Dave, it, and it's kind of a two-part question, and I wanted to go back to what he said a, a, a little while ago, comparing Japan uh, to the U.S. and how we might, might be uninvestable for the next 10 or 15 years. And so the first part of the question I have is what would be the red flag or the catalyst that he would be looking for 
that would sort of jump out at him to say, we're in that dynamic that is going to be the next 10 years. Um, is there a fiscal measure? You know, what exactly would, would, would he look for to say, you know, this is definitely happening or, or yeah, going yeah, to happen. yeah, Brian and I don't know Dave, if you heard the call, if you're still there. And I, cause I know Dave had to get off at a certain point, but I'll just answer it. Maybe Dave wants to follow. You know, I don't think it's like you can ring a bell. It's not like some law passed or some magical threshold you go past that says we're we're there. I just think it's a multitude of things. And so, for instance, I was just quoting a second ago about from this report that, report that Luke Roman wrote the other day. And, you know, a lot of times you look back in history and say, yep, that was it. We didn't realize it at the time, but that was it. All right. Um, I think this inflation thing, um, you know, I think like ESG, like, you know, ESG is a major part of it, and 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 shame the energy companies from wanting to put another hole in the ground, right? Like you know, I don't know that I can point to an exact date where that became the death knell, but there's no sort of formulaic answer to your question. I think it's you got to put the sort of mosaic together, and I think Dave's view, and I don't want to speak for him, and I hope he's still there and he can talk. I don't want to speak for him. I think it's really putting a mosaic of things together. So, Dave, Dave, what would your answer be to the question? Uh, that's why I focus on valuations. I think you reach a point where the markets are so overvalued, <clears throat> like the bond markets, right? I can tell you right now, no one can make money in bonds going forward with, without some major discontinuity along the way. But uh, so I, I think when you're when I do the analysis, I come up with 60, 65, 70 percent, excuse me, 120, 125, 130 percent overvalued. There's just no money to be left to be made. And, and so it's like you're trying to squeeze lemonade, lemon juice out of a lemon that's been put in a vice grip. And, uh, and, and, and so I, I, you, there will be people who make money. There will be fooled by random, randomness moments where, where someone will have made a fortune this year, even though no one else did. Um, but I think once you – it would be like if you bought a fleet of Toyotas for uh, – for $80,000 and you somehow thought you were going to make money by selling them. Once, once you've pulled the man forward, that's demand. You're not going to, that, that's, that's demand. You're not going to get anymore. That's appreciation. You're not going to get anymore. So I want my appreciation in the future. So I'd rather have deferred appreciation, which is what undervaluation is. So, 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 so thanks. Dave, why is your question? I see it's three sixteen. How are you on time? Do you have to, do you have to I'm, fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. As long okay, as the perfect. house right. doesn't become disruptive. Quick, quick follow up. Um, so, it, to follow up on that, at what si what signal in the market? I guess maybe it goes back to valuations, but what signal would would you like to see where you would say, well, that is off the table? I feel like, hey, we we've kind of we're out of the danger zone, and we feel like, you know, I feel confident in investing heavily in the market. Um, versus a heavy cash position because i think you you said you had recently bought into some equities but maybe maybe you're you're only partially invested because you're you're very hesitant based on the valuations well in some sense i'm investing in equities to to bet against my emotional status right you, you should probably do a little bit of that but um let me calibrate you um i started buying in 09 in the spring of 09 but I did not jump in heavily. And the reason was, is because it, it, by any historical metric, 
that was the first of several legs down. What, what I could not have fathomed, which I now can fathom, uh, is a Federal Reserve, which would have sex with barnyard animals to, to, to retrieve the markets. So if you look at the markets uh, in, at the bottom, and I think it was March of 2009, uh, they did get below fair value, but not by a lot. And, and they were only there for about a month. So, so by any previous historical metric, you'd say, okay, this is going to have a dead cat bounce. And then we're going to go down again because we did a lot of damage. And, and so it really should have. But the Fed took off and ran with it. And there was no way I was going to chase it up because I'm not a momentum trader at all. And so I bought some stuff, but next time I'm going to try to be a little bit better buying falling knives. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there's an interesting analysis that kind of hit me this year. If, if you go back and you look at uh, uh, the, the, the corporate debt, it tracks the markets really well. And, and corporate debt went into orbit, well, left orbit in 1994, and if you go back and you look at the 25 metrics that I dug through for market valuations, the market was sitting at sort of historical, normal looking valuation. And in 1994, every single metric took off into the stratosphere. And the, the moment that turned out to have done that, in my opinion, just revising history here, was when we bailed out the bond market and the 94 bond crisis. And somehow we just stopped doing emergency responses to market fluctuations at that time. I don't blame 87. 87 to me wasn't the start of the Greenspan put. I think 94 was actually the start. If you look at valuation models, 1994 was the last year we ever spent any time near historical fair value. And, and, and I, I got sort of, sort of pushed back when I said, look, we're, we're way above historical fair value. And people say, you know, I, I have a lot of conversations with guys like Einhorn, and he says, "Well, maybe, may, maybe your your fair value metrics are wrong." I said, "Well, then if they are, historical returns are wrong too. So you can either pay twice what you want for assets and get half the return, or or not. And so, if if the markets stay up here, then pensions won't survive. Um, life insurance companies will have a terrible time. I don't. I don't know how they're going to survive. Anyways, I don't know. I don't know how they do it. I, it's possible someone who knows life insurance <coughs> knows how they do it. But 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 if you've got built into your model a, a gain of seven percent annualized going forward, I think you're nuts. I think you're certifiably insane. And then oh, here's another one. The pension one of the hedge fund guys I was talking to the other day said that we're going to inflate away debt. This, this is kind of this, this bumper sticker level view of inflation, which I hate. I hate these shallow analyses that are meant for bumper stickers. And I said, well, to inflate away debt, the, inf the inflation rate has to be higher than the growth rate of the debt. We grew debt something like 35% last year. So we didn't inflate away any debt. I'm not sure you can actually inflate away debt. I'm not sure it's even a mechanical system that works. Unless you lose faith in the currency and you destroy the currency. And then that becomes kind of a deflationary moment. You know, when you, when you get a Weimar moment, it's not obvious that that's really inflation anymore. That's You just collapse society at that point. Right. So, Dave, Dave thanks for that. Let's just try to move it along here a little bit. So, see, we got a lot of people there. And by the way, before I go any further, I see we got a big stage. I see there's some people coming up here that are requesting to be recognized. Um, 
if I don't know who you are, I've sent you a DM asking you for your question because um, I'm trying to keep I'm trying to keep the question focused and I, the conversation focused. And I don't want extraneous questions out of left field. So I see there are a couple of people who have requests in to speak. I've sent you direct messages. Please answer or you will not be allowed up on the stage. Sorry to run this thing like a tight ship, but it keeps the conversation on the straight and narrow. All right, so we're going to do uh, Oil God, then my good friend Michael Green, uh, and then Shabam. Oil God, what's up? Thank you, George. And I apologize, I was not listening as much. So I'm going to be listening to the um, recording, and that's largely because I was on a, uh, a, a, web, a web conference with the IEA. Oh, please. Oil God, I'm on the edge of my seat. What did they say? What did they say, Oil God? Relax, George. Relax, George. There's enough diapers to go around. Um, I will say the IEA, uh, Mr. Eric Nuttall, which I just started to post, uh, an actual person. This is, I just want you guys to all comprehend this job title Transition Accelerator for ESG. Okay. Transition Accelerator. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Transition Accelerator? I got a headache. What is that? Exactly. So this is a piece of shit. That came on after the IEA talking about net zero commitments of the global economy and how, you know, we need to continue to transition at a faster pace in terms of the Canadian economy. This was all hosted by a law firm, which will remain nameless. Um, and this gentleman came on. First of all, the, I, the IEA came on first and he looked like somebody I'm not kidding you, who cheats on exams in high school. The guy knew absolutely fuck all, put a bunch of posts up, and I just tweeted a couple, and I know Sohaib was kind to put one in the nest with just charts. He started off by saying this morning we did an unprecedented move. He was on the call with the nations to release the SPR. And he goes, this will solve the energy problem in the interim. He goes, energy prices should come down immediately. There's now going to be much more supply than there is demand. And we've all worked together to do this great thing. And as he's saying that, I'm obviously watching the futures market. And the futures market is betting the exact opposite. These people are fucking bananas, George. And then this gentleman went on and started talking about the energy transition and who's going to, and then the question came, well, who's going to pay for it? Right. And his answer was, we're going to have future generations pay for it. So $4.4 trillion of debt today. He couldn't answer any questions about capacity, load, anything. I actually have screenshots. He could, they didn't answer any of my questions. And then Eric came in without a cape. I should ask, I, I should mind, I should say, and said, this is absolute bullshit. And he did stand up to everybody and said energy in Canada is 0.01% of global emissions in the world. He was actually firing on all cylinders, talking about high margin businesses and the opportunity to reduce debt for Canada and get us out to the world, you know, kind of like what the Saudis have been doing. And, and nobody had any answers. And all I can tell you is, and it pains me to believe this, for everybody who thinks I, we should be paying off our debts, I'm calling my bank this afternoon and loading up with as much fucking debt as I can, and I'm going to be all in on commodities. Energy Burrito, good job on the 60-40 portfolio. I just want to tell you publicly, I've never been more proud of a burrito in my entire life. And oil guy, I just want to let you know, I've called you out. I just tweeted something out. So you're going to be getting a lot. Your, your Twitter feed is going to be filled with questions about transition accelerators as a matter of fact i think the next room we're going to have you as a keynote speaker you can explain to us about transition accelerators that is a real keeper my friend i've never i've never been more humiliated for somebody i've never known in my entire life it was absolutely unbelievably dreadful but actually the iea 
at the beginning, just going through, you know, charts that was clearly printed up in sometime in 2020. Um, this was, I, I'm bewildered. Anyway, I have to go back on mute. Yeah, because... oh, 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 God, do you think that, I'd, be, I'd be grateful if there's a replay? I'd love to watch that thing. Do you think they could do a replay of it or any idea on that? God can make anything happen. <laughs> Thank you, oh, God. All right, uh, we got Michael Green is in the house and then Shabam. Hi, Michael, my good friend. What's up, Michael? Hey, how you doing? Um, so I was listening to Dave talk about the fact that the markets broke away from fair value in 1994. And I just want to emphasize for people that 1994 was the year that index funds were allowed to begin using futures. This is what kicked off the passive dynamic that you guys have heard me talk about so much. I, I just don't see the mechanism that Dave is highlighting as, as being critical here. If you change the behavior and the, the capabilities of individual market participants, it can have a huge impact on this. So I, you know, I, I pushed back against these things in, in 2009, and I really began to embrace them in 2016. But we just got to be really, really careful in terms of humility on how we how we approach the historical data sets that we have. We've got, you know, give or take 100,000 years as a human species, give or take 10,000 years as a literate human species, and we've got maybe 100 years of reasonable market data on which we're declaring this is the way the world works. I just think we want to be very careful. That's it. I'd like to chime in and say you guys should listen to Michael, not me. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave, what are you saying? I'd like to chime in and say that you guys should listen to Michael, not me. <laughs> Michael is Michael is the smartest guy in the room. We're always all ears when he when he weighs in. So um, no, good stuff. I mean, by the way, again, no commercial message here because no one's benefiting from this monetarily. But I just marvel at the at the collection of people we we've had in this room. We have in this room. I mean, <laughs> Michael, I'm so glad you joined. I mean, it's just awesome. Um, so. Dave, really appreciate your contribution as well. Let's keep let's keep this going. Shabam, what's going on, man? Shabam? Yeah, you betcha. Um, thanks for having me. Thanks again, George. Um, I wanted to speak a little bit about geopolitical risk in oil, if if no one has mentioned that and, and why it's important today versus the last five years. Has has anyone spoken to that already or or can I make a little uh, speech here, um, I guess? You know, you can start and if it's Captain Obvious one on one thinking that's been repeated three times this room already, I'll cut you off. Go ahead. Okay, right on. Um, so I think like I've seen a lot of things here recently that, hey, you know, once once this Russia-Ukraine thing solves itself, well, you know, $7 will come off the price of oil or, or $10 or whatever. And and the reason it's it's not that way is because if you look at 2010 to 2014, we were mostly conventional oil reservoirs. So when half a million barrels or a million barrels a day went off the market, you couldn't just fire up something and and bring that supply demand back into um, balance. So, so there was a $10, you know, $5, whatever you want to say, a geopolitical premium in the price of oil. But when, you know, so you see when, when the Arab Spring happened, um, Syria is down about 90% of the oil since then. Their, their oil production is down 90%. Yemen is down 90%. Libya is down 50%. So, so these are reservoirs that have gone offline and never come back. So, so how come then the geopolitical risk premium went out, out of oil? Well, it's because of shale, because for the last seven years, if you had some some bombing in Saudi Arabia, if you had some bombing in Iran, a shale could just ramp up in six months. They could add half a million barrels a day. They could add a million barrels a day if they really wanted. If the price went $100 plus, I mean, you know, God forbid, they could add two million barrels a day in a year. And 
So the geopolitical risk premium slowly came out of the price of oil. Nobody paid attention to it. When, when the big refinery in Saudi Arabia got bombed in, in, in early 2020, it made no difference to the price of oil because the world believed that, hey, if, if this goes out for any significant amount of time, the price of oil will go up and shale will just ramp up. Well, we're seeing now cracks in shale. We saw cracks in shale in early uh, 2020. And now it's even more obvious that, that shale cannot just add this, this short cycle supply anymore. Um, you know, production since the start of the year in the U.S. is down 200,000 barrels a day, contrary to what, what people are projecting for this year. So I think geopolitical risk is here to stay because there is no short cycle um, uh, supply anymore that can just bring on half a million or a million barrels a day. If Russia is down for an extended period of time, as Energy Blogger added, if, if you know, 2 million barrels a day is, is affected and can't be exported, keep in mind that Russia doesn't have that much storage capacity for their oil. So if they can't sell it, they got to shut it in. And if that if those barrels go off the market, this premium is here to stay. So I think it's naive to just say, oh, you know, once once the situation solves itself, uh, the geopolitical risk premium will, will come out. I think it's here to stay. And the risk is actually to the upside. If something goes berserk in with this Houthi rebels in Iran, um, the, the U.S. has brought a destroyer and F-35 jets into the UAE. And, you know, you, you just got to question what's going on. Are they are they ready to make an Iran deal? And do, do they think Israel's going to strike? Do they think these rebels are going to go crazy? So, um, you know, for me, I think the risk we have in the price of oil today is here to stay. And the risk is to the upside for more geopolitical risk premium. And that's why I think I, I haven't sold anything in the oil equity so far. And, uh, and I think you're going to continue to see price oil keep going up here. Yeah, Thank no, you. Sh- Shabam, that's, thanks for that. And in this room, because I like to think we have a smarter room than 99% of all the other rooms on Twitter, no one's been saying that. As a matter of fact, Naif was in here, but he's, he's still up at the top. You could ask him, actually. I don't know if Naif's still listening in, but maybe, Naif, a lot's been spoken since you last uh, spoke out. But Shabam, maybe, I mean, Naif, did you hear what Shabam was saying? Because Shabam, most people in the room, if anything, it's not how high can the price of oil go. I mean, we had, but, you know, no one's calling it down. We had Mike, we had uh, Oliver Parsons who works for Mike Rothman here earlier. Um, Naif, are you there? Do you want to respond to, to uh, Shabam at all, Naif? Sure yes, uh, yes uh, I've been listening and I've been listening carefully about what uh, Shabam uh, uh, saying. And I, yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. I don't know if you two guys know each other. Sorry to interrupt, but Shabam, you should know Naif, and Naif, you should know Shabam if you don't know each other. But Shabam, maybe you can direct the question directly to Naif because he's he's. I'll, I'll just butcher it. So if there's a specific question you want to put to, I mean, I, I guess Naif Shabam is saying that people are underestimating what's going to happen. He thinks the price of oil is going to go much much higher because there isn't really a shale response and the people underestimating the geopolitical aspect of this whole thing. I think that's kind of what you were saying, but maybe you want to repeat your view. Sure. If I can just, I guess I'll, I'll say one more thing to add to that. Like I think the short cycle supply is just not there and it's added on to that is because if you look at since 2014, a lot of the shale executives were paid on how much production they can grow. Now it's the complete opposite. They're paid on how much free cash flow they can make. So they're coming out and saying things like, you know, well, we don't even want to grow production, even if it's $100 plus. Well, there's two reasons for that. One is because, A, they're not paid for it. So so why would they? And B, because they actually don't have the reserves that they said they they did back in 2014. So I think the supply response is just not there, Naif, is, is my opinion. And I think due to that, the geopolitical risk premium is going to get baked back in there because if if anything does go down, um, shale is just not going to respond. They don't care if oil is 100 bucks right. or 150 bucks. Um, 
Yeah, so, so thank so, you. So, so Naif, it's a great question from Shabam. Naif, what do you think about that? Well, thank you, George. Thank you, Shabam. Uh, I, what, what Shabam is saying uh, makes absolute sense. I mean, I couldn't agree more in, in, in the point when it comes to the short, uh, the, the, the short cycle, when it comes to also to the shale in the U.S. Uh, let me start with the shale in U.S. The shale in U.S. right now has, I mean, the companies have different priorities and different KPIs. They are not after expansion. They are not after growth like what we seen in in 2011 all the way to 2014. They change. They change the KPIs. They change their priorities. They are after the cash flow, like Shabam said. They are. They are after the profitability. They are after uh, the retain of investment to the shareholders. So they they very much focus in those areas. If there's if there's no good bottom line that comes from any project or any drilling, any production, they are not gonna to do it simply because they they have a lesson learned from what what happened uh, in 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 the last seven years look look what happened in the shale i think they 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 learned right now what uh, from the lessons that happened in 2014 2014 uh, the the price went down from 147 dollar all the way down to the 47 that we everybody thought including me at that time and uh, as a as initial thought it's going to be like it's a, it's a cycle that the, the, the industry going through and it's uh, i mean we will go uh, uh, beyond but after 2015 and Paris Paris Accord and Paris Agreement for the climate change that everybody start the pressure increased on the investment on in 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 the shale and everywhere in the oil industry globally that's another hit to uh, to the oil industry including the shale and then we moved where we moved to the 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 covid-19 the covid-19 that took us to shrink more on on the investment and also uh, hundreds of companies were suffering in the us in the shale i mean the bankruptcy and and they left the market the operation centers the operation districts the frack fleets uh all, I mean, majority of them are really disappeared from the oil map in uh, in, in the U.S. and and the, the the fourth the fourth hit comes from the change on uh, U.S. administrations when Biden uh, came in and he uh, he put some limits on the uh, drilling uh, permits and and in uh, land uh, federal lands and and uh, water lands. And the key, uh, the Excel case stone pipeline, it's also uh, got to stop. So, after all what all those events that I mentioned, I think the shale companies are really that they think ten times before they 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 put dollar uh, for investment on on uh, in the operation in the U.S. simply because the, if it's not profitable. But it's not gonna. It's not gonna to make any sense. Uh, that's one. Uh, for for the geopolitical, I wanted to go back to where he started with when when it comes to is it is it gonna to be uh, the the price will relax. I don't think it's gonna relax. 
I think we will stay high because because uh, even it's not driven what what the 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 hundred dollar and beyond the price or three digit price is not driven mainly is the not the main driver for the price is what is happening in uh, in in between Ukraine and and Russia, and we we talked about it three months ago three months ago. And all what we seen three months ago, it just getting up, getting up, getting up because we know the gap is getting increased and it's getting b- bigger. Uh, we see we see that there are. Hello, do you hear? Yeah, you bought that for oh. a second. We hear you, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, just there's a call came in. But uh... yeah, no, it's okay. You, you, you see, you were saying three months ago. And then we lost you. Yeah. Well, three months three months ago, uh, we talked about the three, three digits because it's driven not mainly because Ukraine and Russia. This is going to be temporary. If if the if the the issue between uh, or the war stop tomorrow, I think we will have the gap going on because look to the map, look to the production rates, look to the investment. We are on the lowest point since last 75 years when it comes to the oil uh, the, the investment in oil and gas usually every year the average the average every year uh, for uh, oil and gas discovery is about 14 to 17 uh, billion barrel a year that's just a discovery last year we barely got to 4 billion barrel uh, of oil discovery you can see the gap and the demand is going by by the way the, the indications uh, that there the, there are strong indication that by 2030 we may lose 30 percent of the current supply right now not the demand i'm not talking about the demand i'm, I'm talking about the supply if the investment curve goes as it is right now without increase of the investment level in the oil industry. So we are in the lowest level since 75 years. Uh, the, the, the gap and the deficit between, uh, between the, the, the supply and demand, it's getting uh, increased. So well, that's, that's, what we, we, that's why we believe it's going to continue uh, raging but even uh, he mentioned uh, Shabam about other political, geopolitical uh, tension may may arise. Yes, that will drive it. But the fundamental, the market fundamentals, it give us enough reason to believe that it's going up. Naive, I couldn't agree with you more. And and by the way, so hey, have you sent Naive his application for the Canadian oil mafia? Is he part of us? Is he one of us? Naif was a member from the very beginning. Oh, he's a charter member. Okay, good. I just want to make sure. Since the very um, first spaces. Oh, got it. Okay, cool. So, um, a couple things. So, Naif, as you know, markets often have an inability to focus on more than one thing at a time. Um, you know, one, one minute it's a recession, the next week it's politics, the next week it's the oil price. And they often lose sight of what's really important. And one of my regrets or fears in this whole thing, and you're making a very articulate case on this, on this, you know, the reason the Canadian oil mafia, the, the oil bulls are bullish, the reason you're bull, you've been bullish on oil, it's got nothing to do with Russia. 
And this has become a side. And now what's happened is for all the tourists who don't really understand what's going on, they're just watching CNBC and the Biden administration, all this nonsense about Russia, as if that's like the most important thing. I mean, the oil bulls in this room, whether it's yourself, the Canadian Oil Mafia, Mike Rothman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we're looking for triple digit oil and much higher prices. I mean, you you were you were messaging me a few weeks ago about the possibility of oil being 140, 150. It's got nothing to do with Russia. But the people that don't do the work, that don't understand, their their attention is directed towards the shiny object, whatever the topic of the day is. Right now it's the Ukrainian situation. And I actually I mean, I, I mean, look, we all wish the Ukrainian situation would go away. It's horrible what's happening. All right. So let's first keep folks on the humanitarian side of this. But beyond that, from an investment side, I wish it would go away just because it would it would it would it would remove the complication of this Russia Russia question. The reason Shabama's bullish on energy, it's got nothing to do with Russia. And so right now everything's Russia, Russia, Russia. And so this whole Ukrainian Russian thing is a complete distraction from why you, Shabam, oil god, so hey, everybody, most of the oil mafia in this room are bullish on energy. So I could not agree with you more. So uh, uh, naive. By the way, Jim Walker is in the house. I see he's down there. So if you could, he's a down, third row on the right. If you could send him an invite, I've tried to invite him to speak. Always a pleasure to listen to Jim when we can. If he'd be willing to come up, that'd be awesome. Give us five minutes of wisdom. Uh, my good friend Al Levinson is hiding down there in the fourth row. I'm trying to get him to speak one of these days. Maybe he'll come up. Gilbert, always like hearing from you. I'm just going down the list here. A lot of smart guys there. Anyone who hasn't spoken um, that wants to speak, please raise your hand. We've been going at this for over two and a half hours. I don't want. I know it's kind of like you know watching football. I'm not a big football guy. I, was, I guess so. Hey, if I'd say if you can, any guys, maybe it's like watching hockey all day. It's like you know talking this stuff is like a drug. I could do it all day, um, and so I got to put some sort of discipline on this thing. All right, we got Gilbert coming up here. Sir Edmund, you keep wanting to come up, but you don't answer my DMs. And unless you tell me what the subject is, I'm not going to bring you up on stage. Sorry, we just have to. It's a control that we have to have here. So in the meantime, uh, Gilberto, what's up, man? Good to see you. What's up? Good to see you, George. I want to be brief. Either you bought this pie on July 21 of the last year, and you are up or you are down, or either you bought it Thursday in the morning session. That's all I had to share with the guys so gilberto you gotta help me a little bit i'm a little bit stupid maybe other people get the joke so could you please allow me of course yeah like i know you have all these shysters in in, in twitter you know how'd you bought the market at 10 30 a.m last thursday you'd be up you know yeah sure nine percent which annualized <laughs> 550 no gilberto how much have you made how have you done <laughs> Oh, is that, okay, the joke is, going with your point? yeah, the point is the selling pressure that is going to have to withstand the next support on the State of the Union speech from Biden and the Powell speech tomorrow, it's going to be massive. We'll be seeing most likely a retest of the previous lows. And it's just because there's too much overweight especially with the inflows from the last two weeks or three weeks i don't i can remember how uh, when was the biggest inflow of retail traders last last time but just that point because i i know we've been talking about energy all day long but today's session it has been 
outstanding. No, I, I appreciate that. And it's only outstanding because we have all these great people coming in this room. I just try to like organize things. All right. So I'm going to interrupt here for a second. We, for those of you that did not hear Dr. Jim from, I think it was a couple Sundays ago, um, with a, one of the most be, best received, Jim, just walk, meet yourself for one second. One of the best received rooms we've done. Um, we had Jim Walker with Michael Howe. Michael Green was in the house as well. And Jim really explaining the, the, the world through his lens and, 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 and concerned about we might be in a recession. I'll, I'm just going to tee it up for you, Jim. Talking about how, we, how we, we might be in a recession before year end, how the Fed might be easing before they even tighten. I don't know if he had inside information about the Russia situation in Ukraine. I don't think so. I think he was just thinking about the debt dynamics and whatnot. So I'm going to imagine, I'm anticipate, I'm channeling my inner Jim Walker, that probably what's happened with the Ukraine and the oil prices is going to make him, it's already made him look smart because Bonnie Hills have fallen since he said that, but it's probably going to make him even feel more strongly than he did. So I'm going to shut up. Jim, the floor is yours. Maybe just, what are you thinking? What's changed in the last two weeks since, since this Ukrainian situation started? And what are you thinking now? Good to see you, Jim. What's up? Hi, George. Uh, uh, apologies if there's a wee bit of uh, noise in the background because I'm in London uh, on a road show, but believe it or not, the first time in two years. But, uh, yeah, I mean... It's quite interesting. I, I, I've been listening to the guys talking about the oil price. And as I said to you a couple of weeks ago, I, I had a fantastic record at the Royal Bank of Scotland of not even getting the, the oil price right, but getting the direction wrong. Uh, hence the reason I was looking for 45 uh, on the oil price. Uh, and we're now at 106. Uh, and I think we're probably heading towards your 150. Even as we head towards the... Uh, uh, recession, pretty sure. Um, I, I, I was expecting that we would get 25 basis points on Fed funds rate on the 17th of March. I'm actually not convinced that that's even going to happen now. I think these guys will shirk it. Uh, they'll. Uh, uh, staving off from. Um, any increase in interest rates. They don't want to increase interest rates. We all know that. Uh, and if anything, they're, they're going to up their quantitative easing. Uh, and as I listened to some of the guys uh, on the, the, the programme tonight, uh, or tonight, my time, um, I, I just uh, marvel at how prescient some of them are in terms of uh, the Federal Reserve in the United States and uh, the, the, the dilemma that we're in, that we can't get anywhere back to normality, regardless of what's happening in Russia, the Ukraine, with oil prices, etc., etc. It's just such a mess. Unbelievable. Yeah, so, 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 Jim, just expanding on that, one of the things that struck me, and I've tried to channel my inner Jim Walker, but without without your accent. Um, you, were talking, you were talking about, about, about the, the, the ex-ante world, in other words, the world before COVID, and, and, and how that bears no relation to the ex-post world, and we're still trying to figure out the ex-post world and the change of relative prices, and a lot of economic actors just, they don't know if they're making a profit, there's increasing uncertainty, which in turn, I think if I got your argument right, was the increasing uncertainty was going to cause investment intentions to decline and we're going to have a recession. But like, I hope everybody heard what you just said. Namely, you're looking for a slowdown in economic activity, if not a recession. 
and the possibility of $150 oil at the same time. Did you? Did I hear you correctly, Jim? No, it's uh, bizarre, George, but that's... I mean, I'm listening to the guys on uh, your, your broadcast today, and I can't disagree with a single word that they're saying. Um, and I know that you're bullish on oil. I, I'm bearish on it purely because of my my view on the uh, economies. But, uh, you know, it's supply and demand. And if the supply isn't there, and even if the demand goes down, if the supply goes down further, then the oil price is going up. And, oh, my God. What happens? Yeah, so, 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 so hey, so hey, note to self: we got to get a T-shirt out from uh, for Walker. Could you please get find out if he's a large or extra large? He needs to get in the Canadian oil mafia. We're going to get this guy. I'm telling you, we can, <clears throat> he, will, he will be no oil guy. We're going to make. And I say this with affection, Jim. We're going to make Jim Walker a useful idiot for us. We're going to have him spreading <laughs> the oil, the bullish oil mantra. I can't wait for Jim to do this. I'd love to hear him go into one of these big boardrooms and talk about. Now, in the face of an economic slowdown, we're still going to have $150 oil. That would be game, set, match. Oil guy, can you help me on this? Yeah, I just wanted, I, I just wanted, I just wanted, I just wanted to say, you know, it's just been a delay because I've been uh, co- collecting sizing. So I've got about like 10 to 15 different packages I need to send out. So I'm just going to be sliding in the DMs. <laughs> DMs. Yeah, so, so that, that, that's why, George, you haven't gotten yours yet. All right. Every time, every time, like, <laughs> we find someone new that we need to send some material no, I get to. It. I get it. So, hey, I get it. So, but, but, but Jim, seriously, Jim, seriously. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's so, it's such a, it's a multivariable problem. I mean, yeah, you've got supply and demand, whether the economy is growing or not. Then you got to take into account the fact that the, that the, that the, and Naive can speak to this. Shabam can speak to this. The fact that the paper market for oil is 50 times the size of the physical market. So the narrative around oil, whether speculators want to accumulate or disaccumulate, can dwarf what's happening in the in the in the in the real in the real physical market. You've then got, you know, just the whole supply demand thing and, and complete complete shift in uh, supply curves owing to geopolitical um, uh, changes. So I guess my question to you is and I've learned, you know, you forgot more about economics than I'll ever know. I just kind of wonder that, you know, if the world doesn't go into a depression, if it's just kind of a slowdown, whatever. I mean look, let's face it, you go back fifty years and Shabam can recite this chapter in verse. Demand for oil, you know, it's only gone down three years out of the last 50, right? <laughs> and the most recent time because of COVID, but that's most unusual. Oil demand globally kind of goes up, you know, GDP less a little bit, whatever, all right? And so the trick always is not the demand side. The trick is always the supply side. And if you spend any time in this room and listen to the Canadian oil mafia, we got a real problem with supply. So yeah. even, even if we accept your scenario of the slowdown, Jim, I mean, you know, you know, okay, so they both can be true. We get an economic slowdown, but then on the other side, we got a, a supply problem. So, I mean, how, how, how do you process that, Jim? Well, there, there was. You blacked out, us, Jim. Hello? <laughs> Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a great French economist called Jean Baptiste. Uh, who said that supply creates its own demand. Um, And he wasn't talking about just uh, the supply of one product creates the demand for that product. He was talking about it in a a much more general sense. And what he was basically saying was that uh, without supply, demand is nothing. Because if you can't supply, then prices just go up to uh, meet 
any demand that's out there. It, it, uh, it's so basic that, you know, supply rules the world. We, we, we can't demand anything that hasn't been supplied. And, I, I mean, what the, the guys have been talking about with oil and the like today uh, is, uh, you know, it, it's a, an eye-opener for me in many respects. But uh, if, if we keep shutting off supply, then just expect prices to go up in that particular product. And then, as you quite rightly say, one of the things that we've been trying to get over to people is that all the, the, the world ex-ante, the pandemic, and the world ex-ante, uh, the, the Ukraine-Russia war at the moment, uh, isn't coming back anytime soon. And we've got lots and lots and lots of disturbances and disruptions uh, to try and process. And I, I don't think our brains can take it uh, anytime soon. We, we, we've got a, a lot of volatility to come and we've got a lot of, uh, uh, I would think, uh, problems in the, uh, the, the, the markets. So, Jim, let me ask you a question. I mean, it's the first time you're at Roadshow in a long time. Uh, without naming names, I'll protect the innocent. Um, I'm sure when you go out, you know, to meet clients, you come away with impressions like, oh, my God, they're stupid or they're bright or they're worried about the wrong thing or they're really switched on. There are probably some clients who you view as being, you know, wealth of, of insights and information. There are others who are equally useful because they're wonderful contrary indicators. So without naming names. What's noteworthy from your marketing in London, meeting institutions? Anything you can report to us in terms of questions being asked, opinions, questions not being asked, or what surprised you? I'll, I'll, I'll maybe be able to tell you in two days, George. I've just arrived. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, but, uh, I, I can assure you the one thing that's most interesting to me is nobody wants to speak to me. I think I've got five meetings total. Uh, in, Wait a second! Uh, Wait a second! Days. Why did why? Because you're not telling them that your own pal has everything under control, and we're gonna have puppy dogs and rainbows for everybody. Like, what's the problem, Jim? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I, I, I've always had this. Uh, uh, it's been the world for me uh, for the last twenty. We lost you, Jim. Things. Jim, hold on, hold on. Uh, you, said, you said you've always had this problem in the last twenty-five years. Uh, and we yeah, lost it. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, that, that when you're most negative about things, nobody wants to speak to you. Um, and, and and, let, me, let me ask you this, yeah, because it's like the thing when you're short, because like, if you're right, they're mad at you. If you're wrong, you're an idiot. So is, is, it, that, is it that your your story is not reassuring for their positions? Like, why would you say they're not, they don't want to talk to you? I, I, you know, I, I think it's too scary sometimes, George. Uh, and, and I don't mean that in a, uh, an arrogant way because uh, it's anything but arrogant. We, we always just try and say, or I always just try and say what I think the world is like. But uh, sometimes people don't want to hear it, and I don't blame them. Um, I don't want to hear it myself. But uh, I, I would say the, the response to this roadshow, uh, now, it, it might be something to do with the pandemic, I don't know, but... Uh, the response to this roadshow this week has been the worst I've ever experienced in my life. Well, that usually is a good contrary indicator. So, <laughs> so, 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 Jim, just just mark to market your opinion now vis-a-vis -vis where you were three weeks ago before the Ukrainian situation. So all your ideas are at rates coming down. You mentioned before that you don't think they may not even tighten. I mean, do you, do you think, in your view, is, what's the probability we're going to go into a recession here or, more importantly, than whether we're going to a recession or not, 
does, does, uh, are you increasingly bearish on markets as a result? Like compared to three weeks ago, how's your thinking changed? Because you gave you gave a wonderful tour de force. You, you know, I'm pretty much in the same uh, level as I was three weeks ago, George. Uh, the only thing I would think is that 17th of March, we're not going to get an interest rate rise. That, that, that's the big difference for me at the moment. Um, but I, I think that's how sensitive central banks are to the, their own problems. I, I, I've been reading quite a few things from the BIS uh, over the last uh, few days. And, you know, the, the more I read from them in terms of some of the research they've done on the background to zombie companies and to the state of the world, the, the, the more I just think interest rate increases are a, a fiction. Uh, we, we are so far into the uh, the Alice in Wonderland scenario of the rabbit hole, and we just can't get out of it. Uh, it's uh, it's beyond belief. So, so, the the so, policymakers so, have lost it yeah. completely. So, so I want to ask Dave Collum. Are you still there, Dave? Dave Collum? I am still here. Yes, yeah, so I don't know, Dave, if you know Jim or Jimmy, you know Dave. You, you two should know each other. Well, I know Dave, but he probably doesn't know me. <laughs> okay, so, so, okay so, so Dave, Jim is one of us, a really sharp guy. So let's say Jim's got the playbook. Let's say he's right, and they don't raise rates in the 17th, or they raise rates, and the market thinks it's one and done, whatever. Or more importantly, not so much about the 17th, the, the central banks just back away from all these inflationary pressures by doing nothing. What do you think the markets would, how do you think the markets would respond to that, Dave? Uh, I don't know about the um, the equity markets, but I would like to think the precious metal markets would go batshit. Totally uh, agree. I don't think the Fed, I, my my best guess is the Fed can't back away. They've got the, they've got the biggest gap between between the Fed funds rate and the inflation rate in history right now, and I I just don't I I don't think they can back away. And I I talk to people. I've been in panel discussions with people who. Who, who, who knew more economics when they graduated from college than I know now. But, um, but the assumption the Fed won't hurt us is flawed, in my opinion. The assumption that the Fed has any way out of this is certainly flawed, I think. And, and, uh, and, and I, don't, I don't think you can use the past to to predict the future. So the, the one concern I have is that if they had replaced Powell, I would expect him to be more hawkish. I, I, I think that the guys who cause trouble tend not to fix it. And so, um, no, I, I think they have to raise rates. And if they don't, my opinion of the Fed is so low that they're just going to live up to my low expectations. So, 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 so Jim and Jim, I know you, you don't fancy yourself so much as an investment strategist, more an economist. But um, so let's so 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 two things. Jim, from an economic standpoint, I mean, so let's say they don't raise rates. They raise raise twenty five basis points, and they say they're watching it, and people take it dovishly. I mean, isn't the die kind of cast for you, Jim, in terms of the economy? I mean, it's it's, it's not really going to bail anything out, no. No, I, I, I'm, I'm with Dave 100% there, and that's what I've just written in our uh, strategy report that's been produced today, that if the Fed doesn't raise interest rates, then uh, I think it's going to be much worse. The, the volatility is going to go through the roof. Uh, I think markets are going to be completely confused. But at the same time, I mean, I still think these guys have completely backed themselves into a corner that if uh, things are getting worse 
in terms of the geopolitics, in terms of the oil price, etc., etc., in terms of the outlook for growth, then how can they raise interest rates? I mean, I just don't know the way out for them. So, so Jim, let me let me ask you this. I mean, you know, these problems just didn't occur overnight. They've allowed this debt buildup. Uh, uh, this has been this has been decades in the making. The underinvestment in energy, decades in the making. The um, you know the fact that Germany's allowed itself to what is it to take thirty get thirty five or fifty percent from the Russians, you know, been, been decades in the making. The fact that we import so much crap from China, and they own hundreds of billions, if not trillions, of our bonds, decades in the making. I mean, you talk about no good options, no choices. Like like these things just didn't appear overnight. So the idea that there's something they can do to fix this in the short run, it seems to me the die has been cast. What would you say? Uh, 100% agree. That's very unusual between you and me, George, but uh, 100% agree. Uh, It's been decades in the making. It's been actually 50 decades exactly in the making. And I think uh, we're now at the, the end game in terms of the, the my think my thinking is the fiat money system and the the, the idiocy that has been running this for uh, so many years. So I mean, I, I read a, I read a piece in the, the uh, I was coming down the train from Edinburgh to London today, and I read a piece from the BIS, and I thought it was very interesting about the, the intellectual problems uh, about monetary policy at the moment and uh, how there were there were uh, really kind of in, interesting. Uh, issues about the, the new new Keynesian system. And not once did they mention the Austrian school or classical economics because they're so caught up in themselves that they can't. They can't even think that there might have been people that had a, an answer to the problems 100 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. But, uh, uh, you know, that that's sometimes the way of the world. Wow. I mean, at least it's uh, 9 p.m. where you are. It's a little early for me to start drinking, but... <laughs> don't, I, I no, don't, don't worry, I, I'm, I'm just about in the bar. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I'm also just about out of battery, so I should just warn you. So, Jim, we're going we're gonna to discharge you. So, Abe, we'll, 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 get, we'll get your shirt size. And uh, <laughs> you're welcome any and all times. It's a real treat to have you drop in, Jim. So Thanks, George. Cheers. Have one on me. Take care, Jim. All right. Let's George, George, uh, can you can you discharge me too? Oh yes. <laughs> so Habe, so Habe, do you want to give? Do you want to give Naive bid him good night? I think it's uh, midnight where he is. You you guys are unbelievable. So thank you, Naive, so much, and you're always welcome. We always learn so much from you. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah, 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 thanks, Naive. Love it. Love your contributions. Uh, hashtag oil. Do you want to uh, perform the ode before uh, <laughs> to farewell uh, Naive? Or how do you want to do this? Hashtag oil. You talking to oil guy? Yeah. He's probably not with us. All right. Uh, no worries. Hey, Naive, get some sleep. We'll catch you. We'll catch you another day. All right. So no, let's, sorry. Let's... Uh, so, hey, uh, so, hey, I didn't ahead. get to you. Uh, say it again, please. No, uh, so so hashtag oil's got an ode, but uh, he's away from his phone. We'll we'll get it next time where uh, okay. we'll, we'll we'll bid you farewell with an ode. But uh, right. we'll catch you next time, Naive. All right, thank you very much. Have thank, a great you, day. Na- na- thank you, Naive. Thank you so much for coming in, and giving us your wisdom. I mean, Thanks, I, I mean, I, I'm just blown away. We get Dave Collin, we get Naive, we got Jim Walker. I mean, we get Michael Green. Like seriously, Oliver. 
Oliver. I mean, this is sick. This is really sick. I mean, why do I come in these rooms? I'm getting stuff for free. Like, you know, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the service these guys are providing, I mean, we're just so lucky. I, I can't say enough. I can't say enough. All right, a couple more questions. I think we're going we're to finish this one because we've been going on three hours now. So we're going to do uh, Insapiens and then uh, The Real and then Sir Edmund. And I, I want the questions to be tight and short. I don't want speech in the questions. So, oh, and Ill and I. So, okay, so hold on a second. I'm all confused now. So Insapiens, hold on, I'm going to redo this. Insapiens, Ill and I, Sir Edmunds, and The Real. Insapiens, what's up? Yeah, hey, guys. Um, talking about, you know, like the death of the 60-40 and how bonds aren't going to return shit because of inflation and their low interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I've always been thinking, well, what do you do? How do you replace or substitute something for your fixed income portfolio? And something that really like, smacked me on the head was when I was reading uh, Christopher Cole's paper on like the century portfolio, the dragon portfolio. And when he mentioned commodity trend and I've been just looking at that and looking at the academic literature. And to me, it's like it is very untalked of given that in the 2010s, the commodity trend advisors haven't been doing that well. But when like you do pull up like the Société Générale CTA index and you strip out the hedge fund fees, um, the performance is very non-correlated and really diversifies the portfolio. And I'm just wondering if like, is this just something that got arbitraged out or is there uh, so, you know, so a lot of Let me cut you off because we, we've discussed this many times in this room. So you're bringing up the idea of commodities is, is a replacement for part of the 60-40. Totally agree. Um, well, not not necessarily. Like when I say CTAs, I also mean just uh, from right, equities. Okay, so, so I'm going to be very because I'm getting tired here. What is the exact question, please? You're making a speech or do you have a question, please? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, is there a place in the portfolio now for trend-following assets like from the Chicago Club? For trend-following assets? I'm not sure I understand that question. So, you know, like your, your CTA firms, which... Um, who are trend-following firms. Hold on, we're mixing, you're mixing up things here. If you're asking about trend-following as a general strategy across asset classes, that's one question. If you meant to say, is there a place for commodities in their portfolio, it's another question. So what is the question? So I look at like the, um, uh, the Société Générale CTA index and the, the hedge funds that are composed in that. And I'm wondering, like those hedge funds, like an allocation to them in a portfolio, is that how, you know, is this what you do to diversify a portfolio? And no, 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 no. I don't want to speak to whatever crazy strategies these CTAs are using. The, the, the question that the, what we believe in this room, I think generally, is that equities are going to suck. Bonds are worse. There's going to be a lot of volatility. Um, owing to underinvestment in a lot of commodity areas, commodities and asset class makes sense. Of course, you got to pick your sector. It's also getting away from financial assets to real assets. So, you know, I don't want to bastardize that answer to shoehorn it into your question about some trend following trend following matrix. So um, hopefully that answers the question. All right. Before we go on any further, um, I want we have another friend in the house. Oh, my God. We're breaking that. We're, we're bringing down the house now. We have Tommy Thornton in the room. Um, Tommy, you missed our mutual friend, Mr. Jeff Garbaz earlier. Um, so I wish you were there for that. But. Tommy, just kind of curious, it's been a week or two since we last spoke. What's on your mind? What do you see in markets? What are you thinking, Tommy? Tommy, you there? 
please unmute yourself. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Right. I'm sorry. Right. I just ran back up? into my office. Yeah, what's up, man? What are you, what are you thinking? Oh, God, it's just, it's like nonstop. This is really, really difficult. And, you know, we, I just look, I was watching Breath all day and it just really couldn't get going. It was just, it's, I think the lower high bounce that I've been talking about is now happening very, very clearly. And I think we're going to get closer to some danger places when I look at some, you know, sectors that are showing some signs of real weakness here, uh, financials notably. And, uh, you know, our friend John Roke used to call the financials, the, uh, uh, Silvio and Polly Walnuts, the, 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 uh, hold on a second. The, uh, bodyguards to the market and you can't have the market working unless you've got the financials working and they've been notably bad for several, several days. So I I'm watching the financials. I'm sure it's a lot with what's going on with uh, the interconnected uh, nature with uh, the European banks, which have been crushed as well. So that's all I'm watching and, you know, trying to navigate and get through this. So, Tommy, let me ask you a question. If you were going to visit a client tomorrow, so a would-be client, someone you've never okay. had before, so they don't think you're a genius by way of your past prior recommendations, which are great. They don't think you're an idiot because they remember some stock you bagged them in two weeks ago. New client, clean sheet of paper. You don't want to <laughs> screw up. You don't have to hit a grand slam home run from day one. What would you be telling them to do? Uh, I think that um, the best thing is to start and get his expectations straight. And right now is not a time where I'm going to say we're going to you're going to be fully invested in the next two weeks. It's going to be a situation like I would do with all my clients where they get in invested in things at the appropriate time with all those different investments. I mean, look, I could I could easily get a third of a portfolio placed and and rather quickly but i think that right now i mean my extreme caution i would just be more than happy to tell them you know send me a third of what you want to get invest and then we'll go from there i don't want to get paid yeah, for so your cash. you don't want to get over your skis right now yeah i mean look i i think that right now you have such I and mean, the things we're t talking about uh for the last month and a half you've got headline risk with all this ukraine russia stuff and I hate European headline risk because you can go to sleep and say, okay, I'm, um, I'm long the market and I feel good. And there were some good positive headlines and then you wake up and, you know, you're down 2% and you just wonder, you know, if I'm going to have a space, um, at my desk <laughs> going forward. Right. And then we have, you know, something that look, all the Ukraine, Russia stuff is really taking precedent over, uh, all the stuff that's happening with inflation and, I've said numerous times we're going to see an eight handle on the March 10th or March 10th or 11th uh, CPI. And I think the next one where it's going to be in, you know, the beginning of April is going to be even more stunning because we've got all the Ukraine commodity and gasoline price increases. So I, I think we're going to see maybe three, to four more CPI readings that are real, real high. And we could see some moderation 
and we'll see what happens. But the Fed, I was talking to uh, Julian Brigden just uh, a little while ago, and he's 100% it's going to be formulaic. The Fed is going to raise rates and not care about the equity market going forward for more than a year. And he thinks it's going to be two years that they're going to just keep raising so, rates. So, 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 Tommy, that's what we were saying, you know, consistently going back a few weeks ago. But does, has Julian's thinking at all been impacted by the current events in uh, the Ukraine and Russia? No, he's this has been he's been a he's had this inflation uh, concern for quite a while. And no, no, just, Tommy, Tommy, I know that. But I'm going to the opposite question, which is. By dint of the fact maybe sliding into war and the shit that's going on with the oil price in the Ukraine, is it causing him to maybe take pause in his view? No, not at all. Okay, not at all. I mean, he he, we're just we just think that it's a complete shit show of what's going on, and it, it's not at a scary place yet. And if it does get to a scary place, and that's if Putin accelerates the weaponry, and let's hope he doesn't, um, and if you know, the U.S. and NATO start uh, maneuvering their troops. And that's when things get real hairy. But as, as of right now, I think, and I'll kind of finish up on this, Putin is going to win the battle in Ukraine. And I 100% believe that he's got more than enough military and the manpower, which despite the manpower being not well-trained, not very motivated, and not really understanding what they're doing there, uh, and I think their logistics is terrible. So you've got that, but they're still going to knock the shit out of Ukraine. It's awful. And then the entire world, as it's starting now, is turning against them. And that's going to be where he loses the war, the global war of, uh, of acceptance. And, I mean, to get Switzerland for nine centuries that have uh, remained neutral for everything uh, off the fence is pretty heavy. So that's... That's my view. Uh, Putin is in a bad place. Uh, it's going to be make or break if he's going to try and back out of this. I have a feeling, and I'll finish this, that he will capture a major city and then start peace negotiations. So he's got a foothold in the country. And the worst thing he could do is is kill President Z. That would be absolutely the worst PR he could ever have. So... God, I hope nothing like this happens, and I hate war. I'd rather just trade the friggin' market with the Fed and inflation. It's a lot easier. Yeah, you know, Tommy, very well said. And, and apropos of that, um, echoing what you just said, I strongly, strongly urge everyone. I tweeted something out this morning. There was a great um, YouTube video I watched. If you go on my Twitter feed, this is pouring gasoline on your fire. No pun, no pun intended, Tommy. But um, if you look uh, this morning... I tweeted something out. Um, this is it said. This is a much watched video. Very well done. It explains the history. Um, explains the reasons and the history behind the Russian invasion, and draws uh, parallels to the Crimea and whatnot. And it would it would support what you just said. So it's only thirty minutes. Watch it at double speed. It's the best video I've seen on may, helping idiots like me understand. The, what's going on in the Ukraine and what Putin has previously done in similar situations. I think you'd like it a lot, Tommy. I, I strongly recommend it for everybody in the room. I, I got a chance to watch it. I second it. And surprise, surprise, it's got everything to do with oil and natural gas. Yep. So 
That is a must. No one in this room is allowed to say anything about the Ukraine until they watch that video. All right, we're going to go quickly. Okay, so I want to wrap this room up quickly. So we're going to do Sir. Uh, we're going to do Sir Edmund, and then we're going to do Illini, and then we're going to do the real. But I have a request, a requirement: no speeches. If there, if you want to contextualize your question, that's fine. But I want a sharp, concise question because uh, we've been going on for three hours and seventeen minutes, and I'm getting tired. So, uh, Sir Edmund, what's up? George, thanks for hosting this room. It is really an honor to be in this room. Dave Collum, love your stuff. Mike Green, the icon. Um, I I just wanted to um, say that I think Putin and does know what uh, particular problems the U.S. economy has right now. I don't. I think that uh, we can't. I think that the Fed just can't let just can't go on this inflation uh, fighting battle, that they just can't win it. I think that these rate hikes, can that, that there's so much GDP caught up in our asset classes that, uh, that, we, that, that, that that would just turn the dynamic into a completely no-win situation. And uh, we, would, we, we would then see a spiraling debt to GDP problem that would be unresolvable. I think this is his end game. And I, and I think it's the end get could be the end game for us. And on top of that, um, the, the, uh, you, you know, you have, you have DARPA, I guess is now coming around to the conclusion that this whole, uh, you know, reserve status thing with with China just buying everything, you know, rather than buying our debt is now just buying up everything is going to kill us. So I, I think there's a lot of problems ahead. That that's that's my whole speech. Thanks for that. Um, we got you and I. Uh, what's up, man? Hey, George, can you hear me? You're fine. Thanks, George. Um, my question is about whether, you know, whether resource scarcity is a narrative, too. Uh, in the 70s, we had M. King Hubbard and Paul Ehrlich. I wasn't there, but we've got two experienced in the hand, hands in the room who were. And then, then more recently, we had Matt Simmons, Colin Campbell, Peter Schiff in the last resource cycle. Is there going to become a point where these guys are still talking and we're still listening to them, but the resource situation has caught up? Thank you. Answer is no. <laughs> I mean, the long and short of it is, I mean, I'm old enough. I'm old enough to remember when I lived through all that shit. Okay, that was all about oh, there's stuff in the ground. It's not in the ground. Blah 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 blah. I mean, the bullishness of the Canadian oil mafia is not based on whether the world's running out of oil. I mean, we could have that discussion, but that's not been the discussion. The discussion is, it's based around we haven't invested enough, and the fact that in real terms. Global energy capex is down seventy percent, and there are huge leads and lags between, you know, uh, investment decisions and you know black gold coming out of the ground. So no, this is totally different. This is about conscious decision to make underinvestment, which uh, you can't fix in a short period of time. You know, are you asking me like ten years from now? Could the, could could the oil 
paying all mafia, you know, the delegates and thus been a history. That's where I was going with okay, this. Yeah. Maybe, but I suspect Sohaib and Shabam and Oil God are going to be on the own some islands somewhere. They're going to make a fuck ton of money the next few years. So, you know, Oil God will probably be off, I don't know, well, Shubham's well, Sh- Sh- already retired, and our, our, our goal is to, you know, meet him in retirement. So Exactly. <laughs> so you say, well, you know what? It's a high-class problem. Right here, right now? No. Answer's no. I mean, Shabam will probably be on to, I don't know, he'll he'll be doing reality TV shows or cooking classes. I, I don't know. But he'll be able to because he'll make so much fucking money in the meantime. So I, I just think your question's a good one, but. You know, yeah. Could there be another technology come along? Hopefully, nuclear for everybody. And I don't know. We were driving fusion-powered cars like the Jetsons and whatever. Yeah, okay. But it's just irrelevant right now. We are fucked in capital letters. Period. End of story. That should answer your question. All right, real George. Real, keep it tight. What's up? Okay. The first thing I want to say is that everyone's crediting Putin as being some kind of a genius, that he could see the future, and he forecasted all of this, and this was the magic moment that he decided to create some turmoil in the world. Uh, He's not. He's a pretty linear thinker. He has one objective. He wants to move back to the Soviet Union. Second thing I want to say is we've gotten ourselves into this whole problem since 2008-2009. It's us. We did it to ourselves. And every year, uh, the market got re-rated. Every year, we got more money. Every year, we just kept pushing it down the road. Everybody knew. Every, there's, no, there's no excuse. Every year, somebody said, we're going to kick the can down the road. And that's what we did. Third thing is, uh, does anybody know who's advising Biden economically like anybody in this group know any of those people because they have to be talking about the same things that we're talking about they have to and the last thing is biden's talking tonight if he comes out with the same old energy spiel or we gotta go green uh there's america is untouchable our best days are ahead of us. If he comes out with uh, that instead of recognizing some sort of a correction or some sort of a problem economically, um, what do you think the market's going to do tomorrow? Ain't going up. That's one thing's for sure. But so who who's advising him? Does anybody know any of these people? The same and don't say Larry Summers. So. Gonna, George, I, I want Dave Collum to answer this, but I'm going to say the same fucking morons under the, under the Obama administration, Susan Rice and all those assholes who don't know shit, okay? This is the Obama administration's third term. They're fucking clueless. Dave Collum, what do you think? Um, I've been trying to figure out... Uh, yeah, I've been trying to figure out that question, and I would have to say... It strikes me as possible that the names that roll off our tongues are not the right ones. George, just want to chime in one thing. We've all been in meetings where groupthink takes over. And when you don't have a leader, 
what usually happens is that the dynamic reverts to consensus thinking. So you have a bunch of people sitting around a table and trying to figure out uh, something to say that everybody will agree with. And that's what happens when you don't have a leadership. Uh, on the other hand, on the Putin side of the equation, uh, you have a leader that only wants to hear certain things. And there's no way that he could have assessed the financial repercussions uh, of the moves that he's made because just like the Fed can't uh, forecast accurately over the long term, his people couldn't. And just like Fannie Mae couldn't tell you uh, what their balance sheet income statement was going to look like uh, in two months, um, you know, they couldn't either. So the answer to that question is really it's a group and, you know, it's the old co-head is no head. I'd like to chime in on Putin. I, I think he's the most savvy leader in the world right now. I, uh, I'm, I'm well aware that he's probably whacked more than a few people in his career. So it's not like this guy's a cupcake. I think that you can't lead Russia without being a tough son of a bitch. So I don't think you're going to get a guy who seems like a sweetheart. Um, I don't see anything happening now that looks all that unpredictable. So I think Putin, I'm going to come off as a Russian apologist, but I, I think I think we have been pushing at Putin constantly, constantly as a political football. And then ultimately something, I don't even know what our goal is. Uh, here again, down another rabbit hole. If if the if Biden and all the people in politics are owned by China, and if you read uh, Peter Schweitzer's book, it's like a it's like an Excel spreadsheet of corruption. Um, if they're all owned, and we know the Bi Biden's owned bad, then then all of this could be Xi Jinping. And what's the goal? I'd push Russia to Xi Jinping. And so I, I think this is a strengthening of the Asian axis. And I don't think you can break Putin because I think Xi Jinping will be there to say, look, we will buy your oil. We will buy your commodities. We want you on our team. I, I cannot fathom the upside of pushing Putin towards Ping, Xi Jinping. I, 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 beyond the fact that Biden's own. I, I cannot. I, so the reason I voted for Trump was because he said we got to get along with Putin. I said, that's correct. And then we blew it. That's my opinion. What just happened? Sorry about that, guys. I got sidetracked for one second. So, yeah, so Dave, I'm going to send you the email from... Uh... Luke Groman, I, I and again, anyone who wants it, just just DM me. I'll send it to you. But his whole point about you know this is this is China and Russia acting together. Uh, it's attempt to bring an end to U.S. dollar hedge money and weaken us. And I think they can do far more damage to the West through you know rising oil prices, crashing stock market, et cetera, et cetera. 
without having to kill a lot of Ukrainians. And I think. Well, I, w- I appreciate the email. I'm guessing I have it in my mailbox, but to the off, right. on the off chance I don't, please do send it. I, I, I will. <laughs> not, I will. I'll just... Yeah, but 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 again, the point is the point is, like, if they don't, if he doesn't kill, he doesn't go on a killing rampage. Just kind of like sits there and drags this thing out. Just imagine what happens to the oil price. Oh, oh, I think... Just just imagine... No, I'm pouring gasoline in your fire. No pun intended, David, right? Imagine what happens to the oil price. Imagine what happens to stock markets, okay? And I'm with you. He's I mean, he's no fool. He's a sharp character. If I were him, that's exactly what I would do. And you know for sure... Look, he figured out he may get he may get cut off at Swift. And so that's why he went to visit G. And it's like, okay, can you lend me a few dollars? Would you like this mission I'm on, right? G's got his back as far as money's going. So no, I, I think I think he's he listen, and you know everyone wants to talk about oh Russia's a third rate power, the, the GDP's the size of Texas or Spain or whatever the hell it is. You know what? Talk, and they've the economy's been been declined for 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 years and years and decades. Yeah, that's all true. But you know what? For a country which is quote unquote such a lightweight as Russia is, talk about punching above their weight class in terms of their impact on global energy markets, food markets. Uh, potential for cyber terrorism, nuclear capability. I mean, oh my God, this guy's got an unfucking believable amount of leverage. So, all these talking head geniuses, okay, the the fanboys for Biden and 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 and, and the Third Reich, the Third Reich. Now I'm getting excited. Here we go. This is what you guys pay for. The Third Reich, being the third administration, the third third term of the Obama administration. They are fucking clueless. And well, we have just, I, I, we, we we have just Dave, no, I'm going to pin They have just slept walking this whole fucking thing. And you, you, you raised the point. They didn't try that. And again, I have a lot of problems with Donald Trump, but in this particular case, he was 110% right. They didn't pull this shit on his watch. The view from the Harvard Law School faculty lounge, Barack Hussein Obama, please call your office, okay? That's the type of fucked warp mentality that's got us into this problem. Sorry, Dave, I got excited. You wanted to say something? Well, I just wanted to say that one of the things I do is I I watch Putin's speeches, and I've just I we there's no other leader who has the skill that he has at uh, at delivering dramatic punches when he needs to, and so he. Uh, I think it was three years ago when he was talking about weaponizing the dollar. And he said, you guys have the reserve currency and you're willing to risk that by weaponizing it. What what would make you do that? And he's dead on correct, because because as soon as as soon as the, the dollar is now no longer safe, it's no longer the reserve currency, period, QED. And Putin tried to tell us that we didn't want to listen. And then, and then there's the savvy little moments, like when uh, for January sixth, in which his comment to the world was, "I saw 450 people get arrested who came to their their capital to express political grievances." And I'm going, "Oh my God, that was good." The guy, the guy is a the guy is a master. And By the way, Dave, I have to pull your chain. And so what do you think about what we get from our side where, and I can't, I think it was a British, and actually I'm probably going to say this, I'll, I'll get Walker to jump back in here. There was one British dickhead t- 
talking about you need to consider this this whole Ukrainian situation and somehow he was tying it to LGBTQ. And then, oh yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Okay. I saw that. And then and then and then some asshole on our side talking about ESG. Like, are you fucking kidding me? So so this shows you this you just just pair up. Think of a pair, you know, a, a, a pairs match in Wimbledon, and you got Putin versus Biden, right? Just wrap your brain around that, right? I mean, the, 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 there's just no comparison. Or Putin versus Trudeau, or Putin versus Macron, or Putin versus Johnson. Right? Just think of the guys that he's up against. I mean, the only Dave, the stuff we're talking about, it's something like out of the Onion or the Babylon Bee. You can't make that's right. Up. That's right. And and the only other world leader that sort of jumps to mind is, is sort of a dominant player, Xi Jinping. But Dave, how do you think Russia is going to fare through all of this? Uh, Russia's tough. Uh, they, fare, they, they, fare, they have survived a lot. Put it this way, our pain threshold's a lot lower than theirs. I agree, but I, I think this is going to be pretty serious. Oh, I think he's going to be terribly serious. He's going to be terribly serious. But I also think the guy's got the guts. Now, the big risk is I think that Putin gets taken out. Someone muttered that. I happened to read yesterday, I think, and I don't know if it's true, but someone just said the CEO of Gazprom was found dead. Shit like that starts happening in Russia. Dave, let me ask a different question. What's the chance, because I think Putin's as shrewd as they come, What's the chance that Putin actually does something like you know crazy? puts his puts his finger on a button. I don't think so. That I think uh, here's the fear. So, so there's a great Greenwald article where he talks about the group thing, and the problem is when when you reach consensus, the drums of war get crazy. When everyone says yeah yeah yeah, let's go do it. This is mob behavior. Your brain chemistry changes. Everything changes. So. Putin is a, is, a, is a guy who can sit there and make a decision sort of rationally, whereas, whereas what we've got, did you see the support for Ukraine? Did, did you see anywhere on social media people saying, you know, this Ukraine-Russia battle is a little bit of a complex story? Right? I look at it and I go, we pushed Russia, we pushed him, we pushed him, and then we get this. What are the odds, right? I know. You know what the funny thing, too, is they... I mean, I, 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 I'm going to bust your chops, Dave. Okay, like I'm sure. So I want to know, Dave, do you do you have a sign on your front lawn? We stand in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. I mean, I, I love not. these assholes on Twitter. Oh, we stand in, sal- in solidarity with our friends in the Ukraine. Hashtag talk about virtue signaling and trying to make yourself feel better. Yeah, it, it, it's horrible what's going on. Right? I don't even take it out of context. But well, so I was risking my. <laughs> my Twitter existence. Cause I was out there doing things like polls saying, uh, which of the, which of these four countries have killed more people in the last 20 years, which of these countries have bombed more other countries in the last, last 20 years. If you look at our records, said, um, Obama bombed seven Muslim countries. Where were the PC crowd during those? Hey Dave, will the London bookmakers make a bet that Putin won't be around in 18 months? Boy, that's a bet that would be a fascinating one to watch play out, I'll tell you. I would He's sign up for DraftKings. That's the key. He's got to survive his own his own people. So his greatest risk, I don't think, is the West. I think it's Russia. 
I'm rooting for the guy, actually. I, I, Putin, you can't run Russia without being a tough guy. And I, I just, I, I, I can't remember back Putin doing something that was really, really um, provocative. And here we have, we, we spent four years calling Putin a douchebag because people don't like Trump, right? We totally neutered Trump's ability to work with Putin. And so, so I, I, I just, I, I, Putin's not the problem here, in my opinion. And I know if I said that, if I walked across campus saying that, I'd end up bludgeoned to death. I know, I know. And you know, it's funny, Dave, I have a good personal friend who works in the Pentagon. He doesn't tell me anything he shouldn't tell me. But, you know, he works closely with the people that are in positions of power and whatnot. Talking about the Defense Department, he's like, George, you know what? You may not like Putin. He's a scum, you know, whatever. But if you actually look at the way we've conducted policy and we've contributed to this, and I'm not talking about the bombing shit. I'm talking about, you know, look at a map. You know, <laughs> I mean, so Dave, let me put this to you. I mean, honestly, I, I think I know what you're going to tell me, but you know, all of a sudden you got you know, NATO, which is supposed to be a defensive mechanism, relentlessly marches across Eastern Europe over, uh, eastward over a few decades, and now you've got all these freaking miss- missiles lined up, pointing to Moscow. Like, what the fuck do you expect the guy to do? Go, you know, you know, J- John Kennedy, call your office, Cuban Missile Crisis. Hello. I well, mean, here's the guy, what, the guy here's is not trouble. irrational. The guy here's is not troubles, irrational. Here's what troubles me more than Putin: Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. The way that? those guys handled their own populations. Australia went third right. New Zealand was close behind. The truckers moved, are moving in Canada. And I'm finally getting this warm, fuzzy feeling that maybe the average Joe's going to get a, a seat at the table. And then they mow the bastards down completely. That bothers me way more than Putin's moving into Ukraine. I know it sounds crazy. But they're over there in this balkanized world of tribalism that's not really my business. But I'm looking north to Canada going, Jesus Christ, you just confiscated bank accounts, you want to confiscate trucks, you beat the shit out of people. That's a problem. Yeah, and you know, like, I, 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 Trump is such a polarizing uh, character so I don't want this to devolve into a complete political shit show, but there was a kernel of truth in most of what the guys said, but so let's deal with someone much less confrontational. I mean, even your liberal friends and mine are dearly miss Mitt Romney. And you remember the yeah, way I'm he not, was... I'm not, I don't miss Romney. Oh, okay, maybe you don't, but I may in the following sense, okay? His point about, you know, Russia being a problem... And Obama excoriating him in that infamous debate, I think it was in 2008. Oh, do you want your Cold War back? Blah, blah, blah. Instead, we have, you know, Obama with his fucking red lines in Syria and and all the other shit. I mean, the guys in charge right now are completely clueless. Just completely clueless. So, I don't know. It's just, uh, I, I am not hopeful. I am not hopeful. Um... But we'll see. We'll, we'll see how things play out. Storm, you had a question? Yeah, no, I just wanted to say it's refreshing to get out of these echo chambers of, you know, rapid news fires on this whole 
you know, crisis that we're experiencing. But it's great to hear from some of you old timers about the isolationists that we should and we should be focusing on the real issues um, like Dave had uh, alluded to with New Zealand, Australia and Canada. And I mean, to, to even think that's possible here in the United States, I mean, God help us all. And I mean, I, you know, I feel for the people overseas, but we got to handle business here at home. Thank you. Well, we, it's already happened in the U.S. How many guys spent a year in jail without a trial because of January 6th? Absolutely. Absolutely and, spot and then, on. Now let's, let's really take a right to a specific guy, that clown with the horns, right? That guy broke nothing, hurt nobody, walked through a door that had been opened from the other side, did no damage, and just got 41 months in prison. That's a political prisoner. Yeah. And by the way, and by the way, you know... I, I strongly believe, I suspect you do, Dave, and probably most of the people in the room, you are going to see a complete landslide, Republican landslide in 2022. Because, I mean, you know, the, the public the public ain't being fooled. And, you know, you even look amongst, even look amongst the Hispanic voting groups. I mean, they're increasingly going right, going for, you know, Republicans. Also, look at the number of... Um, Congressional uh, sitting congressmen who are not going to run for uh, re-election. I mean, yes, there are plenty of Republicans, but it's dwarfed by the number of people on the left. So I think you're going to see a complete and total landslide in 2022. And it's not about left or right. It's about let's have some fucking common sense. All right. In this woke bullshit where it's gotten to the point now where people can't afford the electricity bills and food's going up. And keep in mind, the people in this room, we're all very fortunate. But the so-called, you know, K-shaped recovery, the 40% of the population that, you know, doesn't have a thousand bucks to their name. How does $150 oil work, $110 oil working out for them? So, right. no, this, you're going to see a political landslide. I mean, Dave, you got a thought on that? Yeah, I'm still there. The, 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 so I got to go. But, uh, but then you hope that the political landslide actually leads to something. Uh you know, you worry that they're all on the same team. Uh, I, I can cite examples of things that tell me that that may be true. I think the Democrats act particularly bad on some issues, but I'm, I'm not sure the geopolitical landscape changes all that much. Um, in any event, I would like to see the landslide just to punish the people I think acted like total douchebags. So I think that in itself is important. Um, look, this has been a blast. My wife just just ripped into me for being down here yeah, for four, Dave, four Dave, hours. Dave, Dave, I forgot to tell you, but there's, there's two problems with these rooms. One, you're going to become, it's going to make you young. You're going to get, you're going to be a car carrying member of the KNO. I'm not here. Number one. Number two, these rooms have a way of, 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 of breaking up marriages. Yeah, I know. I, I get a lot of back channel messages. How do you, how do you get away with this crap from your wife? All right. So, we have a bunch of sickos in here. It's like you guys are going through. We've been like, how many of these can you think? Usually, like you go to something. It's like when is it going to end? Like I'm going to get crap from people ending this room because it only went three hours and forty five minutes. Okay, this is the type of problem we have in this room. So you um, want to know it's bad? I'm in a COVID Zoom group that has all the most prominent anti vaxxers you, you name the guy who's been battling the battle, I'm in that. That's the thing that's going to break up my marriage. They, they go till the middle of the goddamn night. Yeah, but, but Dave, this room was more fun. You're coming back. All right, guys. Enough. Adios.
Adios. Oil Guide, Fabi J, everybody, Jim, Dr. Jim, Shabam. It's been real. We'll do it again. Thanks. Thanks, boys and girls. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. 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 Cheers. Bye-bye.